Hi, it's Jason Silo, your host here at Full Cast and Crew Podcast with a little intro about this episode. Helping me discuss Sidney Lumet's brilliant and still relevant 1957 jury room drama, 12 Angry Men, is my friend, Brian Thompson. Brian is a psychotherapist and certified rehabilitation counselor who works every day to help the needy and the oft neglected on a personal, institutional, and global level. 12 Angry Men is a film about the criminal justice system in New York City, and it's also about nature versus nurture, about being accused of a terrible crime that you didn't commit, about toxic masculinity, about otherness, about fathers and sons, and about doing the right thing in the face of great odds. And Brian Thompson is a man whose life has been about many of these very same things. In fact, he could have been that kid on trial in 12 Angry Men. And as you'll hear, he did go on trial for bank robbery and served more than 12 years in prison. Brian survived an upbringing of almost Dickensian abusive horror in New York City's Lower East Side. He developed a crippling addiction to drugs and alcohol and a taste for the fast and dangerous street life of 1970s and 80s New York City. He literally lived a movie, several movies in fact. One of them was an extremely twisty and compelling story of a man falsely accused and framed for a double murder he didn't commit, and his descent through a Kafkaesque nightmare of a criminal justice system, where the most likely outcome was a prison sentence of 50 years. He'll tell us that tale here today. Drug dealing, prostitution, punk rock, cocaine, guns, and various near-death experiences and questionable enterprises meant that Brian's path crossed criminally and often violently with infamous Chinatown gangs, with the Irish mob in Hell's Kitchen, and with the emerging crack gangs of the South Bronx, Harlem, and Brooklyn. All this before finally turning his life around, getting sober, putting himself through a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in his 40s. This is when we met. And you'll hear the story of how I was unaware of the entirety of Brian's life prior to that point in time, and how I took my life in my own hands the first time we met. He's written a book I had the pleasure of reading in its very early stages, and I hope that one day soon you'll be able to read in Brian's own words his incredible life story. When I finished it, I knew I had to have him on. So that's a little context to my conversation with Brian Thompson, a guy I love, about the movie he loves, Sidney Lumet's 12 Angry Men. Now let's get to the good stuff. Okay. We're recording now, and the levels look good. Brian, your levels look great. It's the first time I've ever heard that. <laughs> so welcome to you, Brian. Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to have you because of everyone that I know, you have probably the most colorful life. Hmm. And I think we'll get into that as we talk throughout the podcast episode. But you're also someone who has uh, really heroic qualities as a human being and has made something of your life when the foundational elements were not given to you to build something as impressive and important as you have. Thank you. That's very nice of you to say that. Well, shit, all you got to do is read your forthcoming book (laughs) and we'll get into that too. So let's talk a little about how you and I know each other. Yeah. One of the reasons that we're here talking is because of a murder that didn't happen. Mm, Double murder. No, I'm talking about you murdering me. <laughs> oh, yes, that, that one, yes. <laughs> okay. So to set the scene, Brian and I know each other through the neighborhood, let's say. Yes. And we have in common that we're both sober, both sober individuals. Yeah. I think about the same amount of time, six, yes. 16 years. Yep. Okay. 15 and a half. 15 and a half. And so we met on the street and Brian is a- Yankee fan. Died in the wool- <laughs> 
I mean, when I say Yankee fan, that's like me with the Red Sox. It goes beyond fandom. It's part of your identity. Yeah. That's part of who you are as a person. Yes. And another thing that we share in common is I think we're both wise asses. Mm. Right? Absolutely. Uh, me, maybe me more so than you on first blush. Like, I'm, pro- I'm probably a default wise ass out of my own sense of uncomfortability, if that's a word. You see, and I was going to go with the most secure. <laughs> <laughs> the most secure or insecure? <laughs> more secure. Me or you? Yeah, you are oh, more secure no. than me. Are you kidding? <laughs> that's no. what I was going with. <laughs> no. Well, see, that's the irony is that both guys are, this is, this is like a lot of Brian's life has to do with, or I should say a lot of this book that you've been working on has to do with a part of your life where you were incarcerated. Mm, yes. And a lot of the more fascinating scenes to me are about sort of male on male dynamics yeah. in that environment and sort of what is read as a challenge yes. versus a appropriate coming correct kind of situation. Right. And so, so when Brian and I met, well, why don't you, why don't, let's do it Rashomon style. Why don't you tell me your version of how you almost came to murder me, and then I'll tell you my version. Okay, so um, you and I met shortly after my, well, it was a year after my release, but shortly after my release from insanity. I had been out of federal prison for about a year, and I had just gotten, I had just stopped using alcohol and substances. Yeah. And, you know, basically while I, the, when I did that federal time, the only thing I really had was the Yankees. You right. know, there's nothing else. And um, federal. Could prison, you follow them on Yeah, radio yeah. Or? I listened to radio okay. every day, you know, every game. But the thing was, in, in federal prison, we're, we're racially divided, right? Mm-hmm. But then we're regionally divided. Okay? Wow. Okay. So I'm Irish-American. Yep. And I was with the Irish-American guys. And we're basically from Boston and New York. The only time we had conflict was... Yankees, Red Sox, right? You know, Knicks and Celtics, that kind of stuff. So you could get away with that stuff incestuously, right? Right, within the Irish American group. Yes, yes, but only to a certain extent, right? (laughs) And if anybody else addressed any of us in that manner (laughs) from outside of the group, that's grounds for for an assault. See, that's why I'm laughing because I'm thinking of my wise-ass mouth. And I think at the time, which is probably 2004, 2005. Yeah, 2004. The Red Sox were doing pretty well. And I think I probably now, and reading your book, I certainly (laughs) realized that I said things to you. Oh, my God. That could have resulted in a shanking. Triggered me. Right? Like, especially not really knowing you and sort of giving you that kind of shit. Right. So that's one of the fascinating things about, about your life to me. Is and, and in this movie that we're here to talk about, 12 Angry Men, Sidney Lumet's first feature film, he says, is about listening in a really fascinating way. And I think the movie and your life and our experiences together are all kind of wrapped up in a way with masculinity and how we're supposed to, how we think we're supposed to present to the world and to each other. And, and the real kind of uselessness of the masks that I think we put on as men. Absolutely. So let's talk about the movie. When did you first see this movie? So, you know, I feel a little out of my element here because you have all, I've been with you since the first podcast. I haven't stayed with you through all of them. But if you remember, I was there with the- That's more than my own immediate family listens to. So thank you. Remember I corrected that double slice of pizza was not a thing in New York City? (laughs) That's true. But I haven't been able to keep up. Yeah. I didn't see a lot of movies as a kid Mm -hmm. unless they were on TV. Yeah. You know, I came from a very poor family, didn't have any money to go to movies, probably went to five my childhood, mm-hmm. you know, 
So most of my movies are classic, Million Dollar Movie, the 430 Movie, sure. you know, that kind of stuff. So I probably saw it when I was 10, 11 years old and didn't make a lot of sense to me at that time. You know, it, it, I saw it at different points through my life, throughout my life, where it started to take on different meanings, mm. you know. So there would be a time early on, my late teens, mm -hmm. early 20s, where, where I viewed it as, as a victim, mm. right? Why couldn't this Malroe model be in my life? Why couldn't mm -hmm. someone save my life? Why mm -hmm. couldn't someone help me, you know, mm -hmm. get me out of my positions? Because mm -hmm. I was in quite a few. You know, um, and I just had no positive role models, right. male role models in my life at all. Mm -hmm. So my first experience with it was, wow, if only he had been in my life. Henry Fonda. Yeah. Right. Right. Wishing Henry Fonda was your dad. But that is a theme in my life. <laughs> <laughs> you really think he's innocent? I don't know. I mean, you sat in court with the rest of us. You heard what we did. The kid's a dangerous killer. You could see it. He's 18 years old. Well, that's old enough. He, he stabbed his own father four inches into the chest. They proved it a dozen different ways in court. Would you like me to list them for you? No. Then what do you want? I just want to talk. Well, what's there to talk about? Eleven men in here think he's guilty. No one had to think about it twice except you. I want to ask you something. Do you believe his story? I don't know whether I believe it or not. Maybe I don't. So how come you vote not guilty? Well, there were 11 votes for guilty. It's not easy to raise my hand and send a boy off to die without talking about it first. Well, now, who says it's easy? No one. And then when you watch it more recently, what kind of different reaction do you have? Well, it goes to the lack of critical thinking in this country, right? Mm -hmm. And to actually, actually see someone like Henry Fonda in that era you know, in front of the camera, thinking critically. Mm -hmm. I didn't know anybody who was thinking critically. You know, to see him standing there amongst this group of 11 mm -hmm. uh, others that are against him and stand up for himself, that's really what I try to portray in my life today, mm -hmm. right? I do stand up. I don't stand up. You know, I pick my battles, but I stand up when, when I feel someone is being done mm -hmm. wrong or mm -hmm. I'm being done wrong, mm -hmm. mistreated. You know, I, I don't fly off the handle like I used to, mm -hmm. you know, but I do speak up and I, mm -hmm. and I try to make sense of the situation and help other people to make sense of the situation as well while understanding their experience mm -hmm. and their interpretation of the events. Mm -hmm. You know, somehow I ended up in psychology classes and, you know, getting a degree or two mm -hmm. and now I get to look at things differently. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so, I mean, this movie is about so many different things. Let's start a little bit with Henry Fonda. I'm just going to play a little bit of the, what they call the kids these days scene. Yeah. This is a good one to play a little bit of Henry's searching vulnerability and expressiveness as a man, which is kind of amazing in this, in this movie and at this time in 1957. It's kind of amazing how atypical he is. This boy's been hit so many times in his life that violence is practically a, it's a normal state of affairs with him. I just, I can't see two slaps in the face provoking him into committing murder. It may have been two too many. Everyone has a breaking point. Anything else? No. Okay. Uh, how about you? I don't know. It's all been said. Talk here forever, it's still the same thing. This kid is five for all. Well, look at his record. When he was 10, he was in children's court. He threw a rock at a teacher. When he was 15, he was in reform school. He stole a car. He's been arrested for mugging, 
You picked up twice for knife fighting. Oh, yeah, they say he's real handy with a knife. <laughs> oh, this is a very fine boy. Ever since he was five years old, his father beat him up regularly. He used his fists. Well, so would I. A kid like that? <laughs> it's these kids the way they are nowadays. When I was a kid, I used to call my father Sir. That's right, Sir. You ever hear a kid call his father that anymore? Fathers don't seem to think it's important anymore. You got any kids? Three? I got one. Twenty-two years old. When he was nine years old, he ran away from a fight. I saw it. I was so embarrassed, I almost threw up. I said, I'm going to make a man out of you if I have to break you in two trying. Well, I made a man out of him. When he was 16, we had a fight. Hit me in the jaw, he was a big kid. I haven't seen him for two years. Kids. Work your heart out. The first thing in that scene I think is incredible is after the second, after... The other guy says maybe it was two slaps too many. Mm-hmm. There's this amazing cutaway to Henry Fonda's face. Yeah. He doesn't say anything. Yes, that's great. What do you think when you see that cutaway that is going on in the character's experience? It's very emotional for me. You know, I see, well, there goes somebody who's actually, you know, understanding what's happening with this kid and recognizing it and not just going with the, you mm-hmm. know, the, the social norms, you know, right. of what they would say about children like this back then. It almost feels to me like he was abused as a kid. Yeah, yeah. Like the way he, he looks it, yeah. is so hurt and sort of uh, – he has this incredible face. I mean, obviously yeah. Henry Fonda. But uh, And then the other amazing thing in this clip, Lee J. Cobb, who's the oh. who's the, the father that's talking about beating up his son. and Totally set him up in this clip. Oh, my God. I You know, it's funny. When I watched this movie the first time, probably like, like anybody, and I don't remember the first time I saw it, sometime in my teens or 20s. I always think of it, it's Henry Fonda's movie. It's, uh-huh. it's a Henry Fonda movie where Henry Fonda is that guy that we want him to be. When I watched it this time, I sort of realized it's Lee J. Cobb's movie. It's his story is the story through which this whole thing happens. Yes. And it's like a magic trick at first because I didn't really realize that because the way it's sort of buried throughout, and this is the beginning yeah. of it, as you just said, he sets this important information up that he's got this distance between him and his son over violence and what it is to be a man. Before he says that, though, there's another key element where I forget which juror said it. Maybe it was Henry Fonda, juror number eight, said, at that point, you're likely to say anything. Mm. And that comes back to haunt him later. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know how much you know about the making of the movie. This is what I kind of geek out on. Um, Yes, I know. So... (laughs) That's what intimidates me. <laughs> no, no, no. So as I said, Sidney Lumet's first feature film, a big Sidney Lumet guy. I love a lot okay. of his movies. And I think he wrote probably the greatest book about making movies called Making Movies, which <laughs> in the title tells you one of the things I really love about Sidney Lumet is he's not pretentious at all about this stuff. He's very matter of fact. He just goes on his intuition. He knows what he's talking about. And he has such craftsmanship. And the way this movie unfolds is so much about decisions he made about how to make this 16 by 24 set, which most of the movie takes place literally in 16 feet by 24 feet, 
and the camera moves amazingly. You could watch a movie a hundred times and still just sort of be figuring out how the hell does he do what he's doing. So there's that part of it, which is amazing, but it never gets in the way of what yeah. your experience is watching it, which is these men representing different aspects of masculinity arriving somewhere together. Mm -hmm. What really strikes me is from the opening of the movie, it sends you in three different directions, right? Because mm -hmm. there could be three potential different characters that we're following, mm -hmm. and all of them lead to nowhere. Mm -hmm. So I really like that. That's just the beginning. And then the judge, when he's charging the jury. You've listened to a long and complex case, murder in the first degree. A premeditated murder is the most serious charge tried in our criminal courts. You've listened to the testimony. You've had the law read to you and interpreted as it applies in this case. It's now your duty to sit down and try and separate the facts from the fancy. One man is dead. Another man's life is at stake. If there's a reasonable doubt in your minds as to the guilt of the accused, a reasonable doubt, then you must bring me a verdict of not guilty. Now, if, however, there's no reasonable doubt, then you must, in good conscience, find the accused guilty. However you decide, your verdict must be unanimous. In the event that you find the accused guilty, the bench will not entertain a recommendation for mercy. The death sentence is mandatory in this case. You're faced with a grave responsibility. Thank you, gentlemen. Amazing. He puts his cheek against yes. his hand and says, this is the most serious charge in the penal code. <laughs> <laughs> he is so bored. Drinks his water. Yeah. And it's a kid's life yeah. in the balance. Yeah. It's so truthful to the way the system yes. really is. Yes, exactly. Which you can speak to. Mm. I mean, it's not a touchy-feely no. criminal justice system that no. we have. No, it isn't. <laughs> You had, as you mentioned, you grew up Lower East Side, Lower East Side, Village, yeah. Lower East Side. Yeah. and you had a arrest-filled youth yes. institutions, jails. Mm -hmm. Yet, at least in your your memoir voice, you you seem to handle all that with some aplomb and, and a certain sort of Brian Thompson jauntiness. Like <laughs> you didn't seem like you were terrified of the cops or the feds or the judges or the attorneys. Or the wardens or the other inmates per se. Is that true? Or is that something that you're sort of just kind of retroactively putting on top? I literally had a ball with them. <laughs> you know, Jason. But weren't you scared? No. I mean, so no? let's let's go from the moment the FBI knocked on my door, right? <laughs> Ring my bell. I mean, my heart's it. starting to race already just thinking about <laughs> but, how I would fold like a cheap suit. Let's just say 1996, right? Yeah. My, my doorbell rang. I thought it was my drug dealer. Mm -hmm. It turns out it was FBI. It was NYPD. So I go to the door and I hear the radios and I'm like, fuck this. Mm -hmm. And I go back in my room, and I do some drugs. Mm -hmm. I um, package up some drugs and some money. I take a shower. I do some more drugs. Um, you know, they're banging on the door. They're on the fire escape. You know, and I get dressed, and I get all my stuff situated, if you know what that means, <laughs> because I know where I'm going. So to some of our listeners who maybe don't have experience <laughs> in the uh, New York City criminal justice system, Brian's referring to taking drugs and money and rolling it very, very tightly and inserting it into a condom and putting it where the sun don't shine. Yes, exactly. So literally an hour later, I opened the door, and they were so angry. Well, yeah. My response to them was... <laughs> I didn't know you wanted to come right in. I swear to God. Come on. I didn't know you, you wanted to come right in. How did you have no fear? I, was it because you were out of your mind on drugs? It was beaten out of me in my youth. <laughs> I mean, was it literally that you had experienced 
worse things in your yeah. life than being arrested. Yeah, absolutely. So do you think that like when you have cataclysmic experiences where the bar is now way up here for like what's a terrifying situation, there's many times in your memoir where you talk about the relief of being arrested, the mm -hmm. relief of being sentenced to yeah. long jail terms yeah. because you're saying to yourself, ah, oh, I now have... I know what the next eight to nine years is going to yeah, consist of and absolutely. that you were comforted by that. I was. <laughs> so fucked up. That's true though. Yeah. <laughs> that's what they call institutionalized. Mm. <laughs> right? At a very young age. <laughs> oh God, it's yeah. unbelievable what you survived and lived through. Yeah. And then uh, you and then you have this annoying quality. Um, you have a new handlebar mustache that you <laughs> premiered on social media the other day. And I'm looking at your skin and I'm like, Jesus Christ, this guy's got flawless, perfect, smooth skin, unwrinkled. Why do you get away with that? Okay, so that's very interesting, and it's going to be a little related to the program. Okay. So um, the first sponsor I ever had, we mm -hmm. won't mention any names, but he's been described in a previous book as a short, pockmarked Mexican <laughs> restaurant manager. <laughs> so he gave me the best advice I ever got in the program, mm -hmm. and he told me to moisturize every day. <laughs> and... That's the best advice you received in your program of, re of rehabilitation and recovery. Best advice. Shit. I should start doing that. Does like aftershave moisturizer count or is this like a, regi a regimen? Eucerin sunblock. <laughs> <laughs> I love that because that's really the only advice, good advice. Yeah, but that's me. something they only started doing 15 and three quarters years ago. Oh. What about the first 35 years of your life? I don't I'm know. sure you weren't moisturizing, uh, you know, down at at scrap bar. No, we were oiling up and going to the beach after the club. <laughs> right? Oh my God. But I've had skin cancer seven times. So Have you really? Yeah, from sun damage. Yeah. What, what, well, wait a minute. How much sun could you have been getting? Well, when you, I mean, if anything, one of the benefits of being incarcerated would be <laughs> you're really putting off that one melanoma. One of the benefits of being incarcerated is laying in the yard on a towel uh, all summer long. <laughs> I mean, they're not handing out SPF 50 in the yard before no. you guys go out? No, they're not. <laughs> when people have extreme experiences, do you find that it distances you sometimes from people because you've been through things that, like, I can't really imagine? I think that would be a very negative way to live your life, mm -hmm. right? It, it, wouldn't, it wouldn't bring anything into your life. Mm -hmm. So I try to look at people and understand what they've been through, mm -hmm. you know, and not compare them to me, mm -hmm. right? Unlike when I first came out and I was comparing you mm. mm -hmm. <laughs> to what I should be doing to someone speaking to me in this way, mm -hmm. you know. I'm, I'm not saying you shouldn't. I've, you probably no, should have. I've always <laughs> told you, well, I've told you for years, Jason, that you were a really big part in my sobriety mm -hmm. because I had to take a look at myself in the way that I was dealing with you. Yeah. You know, but when I came out of federal prison, I came out of Lewisburg Penitentiary mm -hmm. and that at the time was one of the toughest prisons in the United States. It's about a 40 foot wall, eight foot thick, right? Mm -hmm. I walked through the gate and I thought to myself, I laughed. I said, how the hell did I trick them for eight years? And then I thought, oh my God, how am I going to get myself back? Because I had turned myself into something else. Get yourself back to prison? No, to oh. a human being. Oh, to being a human being. <laughs> <Yes>. Okay. Okay. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, I, I never had the desire to be in prison, right? It wasn't a goal. <laughs> It wasn't. <laughs> well, I don't um, think anyone sets out as a goal. I was, I was functioning when I was out of prison. You know, I did make money. I, I did. I lived this life. I think, you know, my son's an attorney, right? And we talk. And he once told me, he said, I will never judge you on the life that you lived, you know, because you lived your life the way you wanted to. And, mm -hmm. and now you are who you are today. 
but you had more fun than anyone that I know, you know? So I had this brain injury when I was 16 or 17, mm -hmm. and that really affected me knowing when I've had enough of something. That's literally a description I was given in the hospital bed, mm -hmm. right? So I never really had a cutoff point for anything. And my success would quickly turn into excess, mm -hmm. and then that would just, you know, penthouse into a crack house, sure. literally. Yeah. Nine Barrow Street. I had a penthouse, you know? With a deck. With an escape route built in. Mm -hmm. Well, <laughs> yeah. that's just smart. I mean, that's just, based on where you were but in, I that just, was just smart. To, I just to, could, didn't know when to stop. Yeah. Well, that's I the disease, right? Yeah. Oh, one thing I wanted to say about this movie, I read this quote, which was amazing. So in, this, in his book, Making Movies, which, as I said, is a very bullshit-free memoir about directing and how a movie gets made. One of the things he talks about is that when he approaches anything, uh, but particularly directing a movie, he starts with a critical discussion. What is the movie about? What is this thing about? And I think this is applicable, as I'm sure, in your work now as a social worker. Mm -hmm. You know, what is, what is this person about? What is this situation they're presenting me about? Then he goes through a bunch of his movies and he shows us sort of, for him, the essential thing that it was about. And many of them are kind of these deep sentences. For example, some of the movies that I love, Prince of the City. You people in the Chase Commission... You know, you tell cops you're out to catch and taking, taking meals or taking Christmas presents. You bastards, it's, it's you guys who run the whole fucking thing. You run it. Starting with assistant DAs who plea bargain murder one down to a misdemeanor. Or lawyers wearing $400 suits who come up to cops in hallways and say, Hey, pal, this, this case doesn't mean shit. Here's $50. Here's $100. $500. $15,000. $15,000! Fuck, I mean, we know how you guys become judges. You pay $50,000 and zap, you're wearing robes. You guys, you, you live in Westport or here on Central Park West. While we're up in El Barrio on 125th Street. I mean, you want us to keep everybody on the inside so you can stay on the outside. That's not true. The fuck it's not true! The fuck it's not true! Treat Williams. Mm -hmm. When we try to control everything, everything winds up controlling us. Yep. Nothing is what it seems. Dog Day Afternoon, another great movie. What? Why'd you, why am I doing it? Yes. Doing what? Robbing a bank. Oh. Uh, what? I, I don't know what you mean by that. I, I'm robbing a bank because they got money here. That's why I'm robbing it. No, no. What I mean is, why do you feel you have to steal for money? Couldn't you get a job? Uh... No, doing what? You, you know, you know, you gotta get if you if you want a job, you gotta be a member of a union. See, and if you're not, if you got no uh, union card, you don't get a job. What about non-union occupations? What's wrong with this guy? What do you mean non-union? Like what? <laughs> a bank teller? You know how much a bank teller makes a week? Not much. Not much. 115 to start, right? Now you're gonna live on that. I got a wife and a couple of kids. How am I gonna live on that? Uh, what do you make a week? Well, I'm here to talk to you, Sonny. Uh, no, well, I'm, talk to I'm talking to you. We're entertainment, right? What do you, what do you, what do you got for us? Well, what do you want to get for it? Do you expect to be paid because no, of appearing? No, I don't want to be paid. I don't need to be paid. Look, I'm here with my partner and nine other people. See, we're dying, man. You know? You're going to see our brains on a the sidewalk. They're going to spill our guts out. Now, you're going to show that on television? Have all your housewives look at that instead of as the world turns? I mean, what do you got for me? I want something for that. Sonny. Yeah? You could give up. Give up? 
Right. Have you ever been to prison? No. Freaks are not the freaks we think they are. We are much more connected to the most outrageous behavior than we know or admit. Serpico, a portrait of a real rebel with a cause. And this is his description. This is the thought for 12 Angry Men. It's one word. Listen. That's fucking amazing. Yes. Listen. That's great. That's incredible. Yeah. In 1957, mm-hmm. to be telling men to listen to each other, mm-hmm. I think, is very far ahead of its time. Oh, yes. Definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, how did he know to do that then? Granted, it's the screenplay by Reginald Rose and, and Henry Fonda actually produced this movie, which I didn't know until looking into it for this. And it, I'm just finding that out now. It was his one and only experience because it was not a good experience for him. Although he thinks it's one of his finest performances and one of the things he's most proud of, mm-hmm. the movie, when it came out, was a flop. Oh. It didn't make any money. So he never got paid. I didn't know that. Yeah. <laughs> so he deferred his salary. And all the cast members, and what a cast, got $900 a week. Oh. Everyone got the same. Which in 1957 is probably pretty good. Yeah. And what a cast. Martin Balsam. E.G. Marshall, Lee J. Cobb was like a revelation. I mean, yeah. so into him. Jack Klugman, love Jack Klugman. Jack Warden, I'm obsessed with Jack Warden. <laughs> I really am. You the Yankee fan? No. Baltimore. It's like being hit in the head with a crowbar once a day. <laughs> who do they got? I mean, who do they got besides good ground kids? Jack Warden kind of reminds me of the way I was, a, a wise-ass, kind of like default wise-ass, really. Although he's a Yankee fan in the movie. Listen, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> absolutely. But did you catch the— you're, Yeah, you're not as bad as him. Did no. you catch the base—he flubs the baseball line, though. Which he's 5-0. and oh. can talk here forever. It's still the same thing. This kid is 5 for 0. Oh. Well, look at his record. He means he's 0 oh for 5. The kid's 0 yeah, oh for 5. Right. Got a, I couldn't tell if he five was and a oh. pitcher— or bad, he's a bull. He said he's a bull. Yeah. <laughs> but he means he's like, yeah. he's 0 for 5. Yeah. He's got the gold, isn't that the golden sombrero? Yeah. 0 for 5? 0 for 4. Let's watch this clip, which is another amazing Henry Fonda scene. This is a scene where he talks about, after the first vote, he's the lone man. And then they talk, and then he reaches a point where he's kind of willing to go along. I have a proposition to make to all of you. I want to call for another vote. I want you 11 men to vote by secret written ballot. I'll abstain. There are 11 votes for guilty. I won't stand alone. We'll take in a guilty verdict to the judge right now. But if anyone votes not guilty, we stay here and talk it out. That's it. If you want to try it, I'm ready. Such an amazing actor. My God. It's like... Less is more is the lesson for Henry for me from Henry Fonda. Very traumatizing scene, you know, because mm-hmm. kind of gives you think he gives up, right? Mm-hmm. He takes a gamble and he wins. Mm-hmm. You know, that's the best I can come away with. You mm-hmm. know, that he really was sure somebody was going to vote not guilty. Yeah, I'm glad you said that because it's not as if you don't have the feeling that he's like, all right, fuck this. Yeah, like I tried. You have the feeling that he's willing to bet on some humanity, but he doesn't look. 100% assured that that bet yes. is going to win out, again, because of probably things going on in the character that maybe only he knows, like we were saying before yeah. in that other clip where you sort of get this feeling like he was abused, mm-hmm. and that's why he sort of has this sensitive, innate understanding on his face. And this one, too, with his eyes and his control of his face as his as he's acting, 
he's giving you so much more than just what he's doing in the scene. And that's just, I love that stuff about movies and acting. It's like, how's he do that? And it's kind of the answer is usually, unfortunately, very like pedestrian and disappointing. It's like, usually by not really doing anything. Yeah. He's just, that's, that's what he, he does. Has that ability behind <laughs> his eyes oh. to, to, to read that. Right. I wanted to play you this clip from Sidney Lumet on Henry Fonda as an actor. I thought this was a really truthful comment. You know, there are certain actors, Charlie, who are so pure that for me, at least, they become a barometer of truth. I can measure the truthfulness of myself, of my own work, and almost every other person's work on that set by what they are doing. Uh, Fonda was one of those. And uh, I don't know of a greater compliment that you can, you think you can give anyone. That's amazing. It's very interesting, yeah. You know, a you barometer. can't, he, he, he could, you can't get away from what's going on through Henry Fonda. The other thing that's amazing about this being in 1957 is Henry Fonda gives this really like naturalistic performance. It's not, you know, movies of the time in the 40s, it's very right. stylized yes. and the dialogue is not the way people actually talk. And even a lot of people in this movie, like Jack Warden, Lee J. Cobb, Jack Klugman, a lot of them have those mannerisms of the movies of the 40s and 50s. But Henry Fonda, I think, is he's he's kind of that bridge between like what we're about to see happen in movies in the 60s, like new cinema, new Hollywood and 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 naturalistic acting and different types of people put on screen. And here's a guy in Henry Fonda who's the epitome of Hollywood from, you know, the the 30s and 40s and 50s, who's kind of like bridging this gap already to a more naturalistic style right. of acting because he can be in a movie like this. It's pretty cool. I totally understand what you're saying. I always viewed him as, um, in this movie, as coming into the city on a commuter train. Hmm. Like not being a New Yorker, mm -hmm. being, you know, kind of like the, uh, the Robert Young reference I gave you a couple mm -hmm. days ago. Mm -hmm. Like he stepped out of Father Knows Best yes. into this, you know, yeah. very uh, emotional picture. It is emotional. Do you get emotional when you watch this movie? And I what, do. In what spots do you get emotional? Or is it always different? Yeah, I guess it's always different. But when they, when they said, uh, who's it, Jack Webb, juror number three? Jerry number three is the guy who destroyed his relationship with his son. Oh, yeah, Lee J. Cobb. Lee J. Cobb, right. Yes. Jack Webb's the Boston yeah, Jack fan. Webb is- uh, The Boston fan. Yeah. No, Yankees. no, not Jack Webb. Jack, <laughs> you're talking about Jack Warden. Jack Warden. Yeah. He's a Yankee fan. He's a Boston no, fan. No, he's not. He's a Yankee fan. He has he tickets just, for the Yankee-Cleveland game. I'm just saying he's a Boston. He's a typical <laughs> Boston fan. <laughs> he is playing a Yankee fan in the movie. Oh, yes. he's from Brooklyn. I mean, he's the most New York, Brooklyn guy okay, in the he's movie. He's the Boston fan persona, Jason. <laughs> <laughs> Who's baiting who now? Does everybody come in here and bait you? Yes. Okay. I do, I, <laughs> which I deserve. I which I deserve. That's uh, why I do this. Okay. You know? Get uh, my comeuppance. So anyway, as you were saying. When they set him up with the, um, at that point, he's likely to do anything. And later on, and he threatens to kill mm. uh, Jack Klugman, mm -hmm, is it? Mm -hmm. Yeah. I love Jack Klugman's character. It's just like, mm. in my mind, it's some reverse Felix Unger stuff going on. <laughs> <laughs> you know, bef before he even knew anything about Felix Unger. Well, let's get going. I think we're missing the point here. This boy, let's say he's the product of a broken home and a filthy neighborhood. We can't help that. We're here to decide whether he's innocent or guilty. Not to go into the reasons why he grew up the way he did. He was born in a slum. Slums are breeding grounds for criminals. I know it and so do you. It's no secret children from slum backgrounds are potential menaces to society. Now, I think... Brother, you can say that again. The kids who crawl out of these places are real trash. I don't want any part of them, I'm listen, telling you. Listen, I... Uh, 
I've lived in a slum all my life. Well, I mean, wait, wait a wait, minute. Sh please, I, I've played in backyards that were filled with garbage. I mean, maybe you can still smell it on me. Now, listen, Sonny. Come on, now. There's nothing personal oh, about there this. There was something oh, personal. Come on, fella. He didn't mean you. Let's not be so sensitive. This sensitivity, I can understand. It's not like what, you, what you're used to seeing Jack Klugman do. Yeah, right. So if you grew up like I did watching Quincy or The Odd Couple. Right. So his opposite is Felix. Uh, uh, yeah. yeah. And he's so sensitive yeah. and sort of vulnerable and says, you know, I'm one of those kids. Hey, hold on a second. <laughs> I'm from the ghetto. <laughs> God, it's amazing. Such a cast. I mean, yeah. I, could, I mean, all of these guys are incredible. Uh, and are deserving of playing their own clips. Of course, we didn't. Yeah. We'd have to play 13, 12 clips, really. Yeah. Actually, I'm so bad at math. I was trying to count them on the screen because at one point I thought that Martin Balsam, who's like the four person, uh -huh. I thought there were 13 men in the room and like he didn't vote. <laughs> okay. Which is made worse because I just last year was on a grand jury. So I should know how that works. But then we have way more people than 12 in that. That's like you have like. 30 people in a room or something or 23? Yeah. Yeah. That's a lot more people. Have you ever, can you serve on a jury now? So I'm probably the only person that you know that has a permanent exemption <laughs> from uh, jury duty. Permanent. Yeah. So I went in and I spoke to them and I, and I, you know, what's happened now, I fully take responsibility for stuff that I did, mm -hmm. but there's also the incident of the manufactured case against me. Mm -hmm. And I told them I will never, ever believe anything that is presented to me mm -hmm. by the DA's office. And he said, well, I think we should give you a permanent exemption from jury duty. <laughs> Do you have a card? Do they give you a card or it's like a letter? Computer. It's in the computer. <laughs> permanent exemption. Wow. Yeah. You don't get that. Just All you have to do is just say, I'm never going to believe anything. Or you have to say, like, I was accused of a double murder, which well, I didn't commit. Right. And we have that in record, you know. So that's all mm -hmm. there. And they can be like, you know. And you know what the guy who was doing the interview, he's like, it's terrible what they do. It's not the mm. first time I've heard of this. Yeah. So just to give a little background on the story that you're telling. Uh, while you were running wild and committing plenty of crimes for which you could have been charged and yes. some which you were charged. At least a felony a day. At least a felony a day. It keeps the doctor away. You were, what would you call it? Framed? Set up? I was uh, ratted out? I, yeah, I was, Somebody no, I tried was to framed, put a blame uh, on you? A case was manufactured against manufactured, me. Manufactured, that's yeah. a good term. Yes. Yeah. No, it's definitely, it was manufactured when you get to look at it from the ground up. Right. It was a hot shot DA, mm -hmm. never lost a murder trial. Jimmy Coonan and those guys were the first guys to beat him on the murder trial. Hi, it's Jason again. So Brian just mentioned Jimmy Coonan, who was a legendary and notoriously violent New York City Irish gangster of the 70s and 80s. Coonan wrestled control of the Irish mob in 1977 by allegedly having then-boss Mickey Spillane, not the crime writer, killed by the Italian mafia. Anyway, in 1979, Jimmy Coonan was acquitted of the murder of a bartender, Harold Whitehead. And this is probably the murder rap that Brian's referring to. By the way, Phil Juano's excellent 1990 film State of Grace, starring Sean Penn, Gary Oldman, Robin Wright, and Ed Harris, was based on Jimmy Coonan and his violently complicated relationship with the Italian mob under Paul Castellano in the 1980s. Of course, this was before John Gotti had Castellano rubbed out in 1985, and, well, you get the idea. In the movie... Ed Harris's Frankie was patterned after Jimmy Coonan, while Gary Oldman's Jackie was based on Coonan's best friend and enforcer, Mickey Featherstone. And Mickey Featherstone figures prominently in Brian's near miss of 50 years in prison for a double murder he didn't commit. You can read more about all these guys in T.J. English's definitive 1990 book, The Westies. Now back to my conversation with Brian about 12 Angry Men. The head of Rackets Bureau in Manhattan back in the time, uh, his name was... 
mm-hmm. and I have no problem saying his name, as you mm-hmm. can tell. Yeah. Jason here for a brief disclaimer. You heard that we beeped out name just there, and there's going to be a handful of other places where that happens as well. We're doing that out of an abundance of caution. I have no reason to doubt Brian's veracity. In fact, just the opposite. If anything, I know him to be a guy totally unafraid of the truth, whatever it is. I, however, am an overly cautious coward who listens to lawyers and subjected to a few beeps. We're going to let the substance of Brian's story be told here without naming a few names. Now back to my conversation with Brian about 12 Angry Men. Um, He went out of his way to try and convict me and send me away for life for two murders that I did not commit. Mm Mm-hmm. And that he knew I didn't commit. Mm. I think I told you they arrested me on the street. Mm-hmm. right? Okay, so the murder occurred in, um, what was it, like 80 or something? Mm-hmm. Something like that, 1980. Two of my friends got killed in the bar that they owned mm-hmm. on Worth Street in Chinatown, both shot in the head. And uh, I was arrested for it almost six years later. And one of the guys who was killed was a... Um, popular member of the Asia, the Chinese community. Right. Was he a gang member? He was a pretty legendary gambler and bar owner. Okay. He was uh, associated with the Freemasons. Mm-hmm. Freemasons uh, were a business organization like all the other gangs are, but they were less violent. Mm-hmm. So if you want to get into it, like the On Long, those were the ghost shadows, the hip thing, <laughs> they were the flying dragons. Yes. They were the people with the guns on the street. You know, the Masons weren't. They were more business, financial financially based. But they weren't like the Masons that we know of when we think about like the- It's the Freemasons. It's the same same organization just happened to be like- It's the Chinese version. In Chinatown and- (laughs) Yeah, they're still there. (laughs) I love Chinatown, by the way. And part of your story that's amazing, throughout all of your incarcerations, you weren't a member of any gang per se. You have a term for it in the memoir. I can't remember what it is, that you're an independent. Yeah. You're an independent. (laughs) But you did gravitate on your street life to things like- Chinese gangs yeah. in Chinatown. Yeah. And was that just a matter of because you were kind of growing up in the Lower East Side? Or was there something about that part of New York and that life and that culture that appealed to you? Well, there's a few different things going on here. So at this point, I was living in uh, the Smith Projects, mm-hmm. which isn't a pretty place. Mm-hmm. I was one of two white families. The other white family was Italian, so they got to go to Knickerbocker Village and have friends. Mm-hmm. I didn't know anybody. So... And also, when I was young, I was the, the smallest guy around. Okay. So I would get beat up every day. I get beat up by the blacks and the Hispanics mm-hmm. in the projects, and I get beat up by the white kids for hanging for living with the blacks and the Hispanics. Mm. And um, one day, I discovered the Chinese kids didn't want to beat me up. <laughs> <laughs> They'll have me. <laughs> Actually, I punched one of them in the mouth in, in an arcade, and then the other guys, the gangsters, came over to me, and they're like, hey, who are you? Who are you? What's your name? Mm. And we became friends. Yeah, I love this art. What was the name of the arcade that you hung out at? Chinatown Fair. Oh, my God. <laughs> I could see that place in my mind when you're describing it. Like, I don't know why. Like, I like to read about Chinatown. Uh-huh. I like to read about all the gang culture in New York City yeah. from all the different eras. Uh, the Irish gang. Chinese gangs. I love, uh, recently I went on a crazy jag. My wife was like, what are you doing? I read like 10 books about crack gangs in Brooklyn Mm -hmm. and Queens and the Bronx and Harlem. my friends. Probably you know many of these guys, right? (laughs) The Razor Gang, did you read about them? R-A-I-S-O-R? I didn't read about them. I read about like uh, Preem and Griff and and Brian Glaze Gibbs (laughs) and all these guys and the life. I don't know. It's something about, it's something about like, if you want to learn about America, you got to read about 
the people that sort of are the most oppressed or get the least of what America is supposed to be yeah. about, because that's really what the country really is about. And without getting onto too big of a tangent, when you start talking about housing projects and what is going on and what isn't going on within that kind of really closed off, purposefully closed yeah. off from the rest of society, that's like literally let's put them over there and everything that that can then breed. And then you start to read what I like is the nitty gritty aspect of the drug business, the crack trade, and how in every one of these books and every one of the stories of these gangsters or wannabe gangsters or whatever, it's always the same trajectory, which is in the beginning, killing is not a thing, really. It's business and there's a certain decorum around the business until the money gets so big that kind of like when you're talking about being in prison and uh, having a certain kind of code of conduct that is adaptive to the situation you're in, yeah, there becomes, I guess there comes a certain point in the drug business where a human life is worth so little compared to what you're going to get either in turf territory and even more horrible and painful, like uh, credibility, mm -hmm. respect, like a, a rep, Right, which is the most meaningless of all things, yet very meaningful within the context of the, the drug gang. And that's something you have to come to terms with if you want to be that person, right? I guess. Yeah. Has anyone ever done it and not had to do that? I no. don't know. You just like that's <laughs> that's what you got to be good with. No, because then they get to take it from there. But somehow Chinatown, the Tongs, the gangs, they had style, right? They had cool jackets. Oh my god! Right, Sassoon jeans, <laughs> Nike, uh, what was it? Uh, Nike um, Cortez. Mm -hmm. You know, the Ghost Shadows had the Nike Cortez. The Flying Dragons had the Adidas Superstars. <laughs> you know, the mm -hmm. leather bombers, the soccer shirts. You know, back in '79. Right. Everybody had a DA, a mm -hmm. gold chain, a Dunhill lighter, mm. <laughs> and. At that point in the 70s, were these guys still settling things with fists and brass knuckles or were there guns already? They very rarely fought with their hands. They were shooting everybody. Really? It was so bad. You know, 78, 79, 80. Yeah. Hmm. And Jason, it was really like this. You know, they'd give a kid a gun, he'd cover his eyes and pull the trigger. And three people would <laughs> get hit, but never the victim. Never the victim. Yeah. yeah. God. Yeah. It's insane. Somebody was looking over for, over you or out for you. I'm oh, yeah. Sure. Yeah. A few times. Oof. God. Let me play you another clip here, lest we forget the movie that we're here to talk about. Here's another amazing moment from the actor George Voskovec. This is referred to as the democracy speech. There's so much stuff in this movie that's kind of like, especially today when I watched our I really unfortunate like tragedy of a president take some angry victory lap over his, like, criminal enterprise not being taken down by the criminal justice system. And then watching this movie, there's so many, uh, you know, you, you, you would wish any of these men could be president instead of President Trump. Yes. Even, even Lee J. Cobb, I would take, you know, or Jack Warden for that matter. He, he, Lee J. Cobb comes to terms with himself. This clip also starts with the greatest one-liner in the movie. I suppose somebody has to start it off again. I beg pardon. I beg pardon. What are you so polite about? For the same reason you're not, is the way I was brought up. This fighting, that's not why we are here to fight. We have a responsibility.
this I have always thought is a remarkable thing about democracy, that uh, we are, oh, what is the word, uh, notified, that we are notified by mail to come down to this place to decide on the guilt or innocence of a man we, we have never heard of before. We have nothing to gain or lose by, by our verdict. This is one of the reasons why we are strong. We should not make it a personal thing. Thank you. What is the line for you? Oh, when the guy says uh, at the joke at the top where he's like, well, wrong. What's, why do you say that for the same reason you do? Yeah. That's my upbringing. That's really he just good. Puts, that's mm-hmm. Ed Begley Jr.'s father, by the way, the old guy, mm-hmm. the, the crotchety old guy. Um, but that's such a great scene too. I mean, I guess all the great ones, the great movies, just you could watch them in any decade and they probably start to speak to you about what the hell is going on in your world. This one definitely does that too. You know, a a big cinematic problem for me is I don't know about 1957, Mm -hmm. but today, and I mean, all of my life, they do not have murder trials in that courthouse. So that's, is that the 60 Center Street building? Yes. That's where this takes place. Yes. Right. So the murder trials are at oh, that's 111 true. Center. Well, also, I mean, if you want to get into the nitty gritty of it, if a juror on a murder trial went out at lunch and bought a knife that was the same <laughs> knife and brought that into the court, that was first pretty, of all, yeah. that's, that would be, I believe that would be mistrial. grounds for a mistrial yeah, if that ever absolutely. got out. <laughs> uh, there's actually a funny quote that um, Supreme Court Justice... Sonia Sotomayor, a lot of lawyers and judges love this movie, obviously, mm. but she also would tell law students not to follow the film's example because most of the conclusions that the jurors are making are based on speculation and not fact. Mm. So there's plenty of times where they're talking yes. where they're like, I think he was doing this. And that's and they're like, okay, yeah, I'll buy that. Um, of course, I don't think that really matters. But if you ever have served on a jury, and when I served on a grand jury, it's kind of horrifying to think of your life being in the hands of your fellow citizens, having watched up close how little attention most people are paying to grave matters, in that case, of whether to indict people for felony drug crimes. Right. And how it is like like literally not listening and just raising their hand every time to get through this. And there's like somebody's going to be indicted here for, you know, 12 felony counts if you if you enough of you raise your arm. Well, use the Google machine. Um, I believe they indicted a ham sandwich in New York City. Just you mean like really? As a test. As a test? Yeah. To see yeah. If, yeah. Oh, I absolutely 100% yeah. believe that. 100% would believe that. Yeah. Goes right to what you're saying. So you now work in the system. Mm. Not the prison system. No. But you work with people who are in what situation in their life? Well, currently... Um, I'm working with people who are facing disabilities or impacts to employment. Mm-hmm. You know, with the career path that I've chosen, I, I've been through several different levels of the tiers mm-hmm. of this, you know, from drug treatment, criminal element. Mm-hmm. Right now, I'm pre- uh, my participants are not criminal or mm-hmm. drug. They might be some cases. It's mostly a physical impairment to employment. Okay. And yeah. you're helping them find work? Well, I navigate issues that arise through their impairment within the workplace. So I'm, I'm a mental health counselor, but I'm also a certified rehabilitation counselor. 
And as a CRC, we are the people who are insurance reimbursable for working with people who have disabilities. Okay. So we're a very specific license. Okay. Right? And a lot of sites are required to have us on staff mm-hmm. because no one is trained to do the job that we do specifically. Mm-hmm. And I don't say that and, you know. Sure. It's just like I'm not trained to change the Freon in a car if they still use Freon, <laughs> you know. Right. Uh, it's just what I, one of the licenses that I have. And what age did you stop going to school formally? So I was confined, right, mm-hmm. through the 10th grade. You were confined through the 10th grade? It was from my arrest at 12. Right. Right. I went away at 13. Yeah. And I stayed there till I was 17. Wow. I got sent out to a, an outside school in Briarcliff Manor. Mm-hmm. And at the time, it was like IBMville. All sure. The, you know. Upper, an upper middle class upper, white yeah. professional neighborhood. Right. right. So they sent this white kid from the Lower East Side. They bust me there in the morning. And I got caught. I got kicked out because I got caught smoking weed in the girl's bathroom with the sheriff's daughter. As I'll, one does. Great. Well, that's where all the kids have the best drugs. <laughs> Absolutely. Tie stick. What are you kidding? That probably was, did that change that, did that kind of change your opinion a little bit about the, uh, the upper middle classes there? Or you just were sort of excited to take me. advantage of the, uh, <laughs> I was more confused. The sheriff's daughter. Yeah. You could have picked someone better than the sheriff's she daughter. She was a lot of fun. <laughs> but um, anyway, so when I came back to the city, at that time, if you left the school system for a year, you had to be tested back into it. Mm. So- they took me, who was academically handpicked to go to Brycliffe Manor High School, right. brought me back and put me in special ed. Wow. Because I had to test back into the system. So the first test they, that I, first real test that I took was social studies or geography midterm. Mm-hmm. And I got a 98 on it. And when, the, when they told me I got a 98, I told them, go fuck yourself. I grabbed the cutest girl and I left. Why? Because I just wanted them to go fuck themselves. <laughs> and I wanted to go hang out with <laughs> But you would have then, you would have tested back into right, the appropriate humi- grade. Oh, I felt humiliated. Wait, I, I don't understand how you felt humiliated by getting a good grade on the test. They made me sit in this classroom. Right. With, I'm seriously uh, disabled people, special ed kids, you know. But this was, this was... Was it like an injustice that you tested that well and then they put you in a special ed? Or you're no, saying they just was, put you in a special ed before you took the test? Yeah. Anybody okay. who was out of the system for a year had mm-hmm. to test back in. They had to go in this class. Okay. So now I've got this stigma attached to me, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And uh, I just after I took the test, I walked out. Wow. But that's the theme of my life, walking out on stuff. Sure. Yeah. Okay. So then from that point on, no more formal schooling. But wait a second. I did, I did get a GED... In prison, my okay. first time, right? I took the pretest, and it was the worst experience. Not the worst experience of my life, but it was a bad experience. So I took the pretest, and I scored uh, 322, which was enough for them to tell me that I stole the test and demand <laughs> that I give them back the copies. Because there's had. no way you could have done this yeah, well. Yeah. <laughs> so they actually took me into a room and made me retest by myself in a storeroom with a teacher. <laughs> Right. Wait, Mon- this is this is while you're getting your GED. This is in prison. <laughs> yeah. Why do they care? Just to humiliate you additionally, uh, like I that you know. must be getting over to do that well. I don't know. Based on what? Like, were you a were you a good prisoner at that time at that institution? <laughs> I was never a good prisoner. <laughs> so maybe this is their way of fucking paying you back. 
But no, I didn't do anything to them. You know, I wasn't mm-hmm. I wasn't out there fighting, you know, the staff up front, but I was doing everything I could. But they're basically like, there's no way you could be this smart and be in here. Right. So so which, you know, fair point, Brian. But I got a 311 on the test that I did face to face, which is only eleven points lower. Then every ceremony they give the person with the highest score, a $50 check and a dictionary. Sure. Okay. I got nothing. Wow. <laughs> and you would have had the highest score for the first score and the second score? <laughs> yeah. Jesus. But I got nothing. I didn't deserve anything. Wow. Damn screws. Well, the, the story I was trying to tee you up for okay. was an incredible moment in your memoir and, and in your life, because I was around for a little bit of the beginning of this, and I've seen this before mm-hmm. with people who make changes in their life and- you know, I always think of like what we think of as heroes are people who generally don't deserve that label because they're just movie stars or mm, yeah. sports stars or whatever. But when I see people like you who at what, 40, 45, go back to school, like and not just school, like 48. really 48. And tell me the story of how you ended up going back to school at 48 and what the choices were at that point in your life. Okay, so when I when I first got sober, um, you know, I was still absolutely crazy, and I decided, oh, I'm going to do stuff to to make people happy, to help mm-hmm. people. And I don't know if you remember, but I became a cook. That's right. And I actually landed with David Boulay, my first gig, and you know, from then it was just Boulay, Tabla, Noble, all that stuff, right? Mm-hmm. But I really didn't enjoy that. I, I was more of a rustic style guy, right? Okay. So anyway, during this time, my lung disease started to flare up. Okay. So. Which is, which stems in part from some of your childhood experiences. Oh my God. <laughs> Does it? You breathed in some shit you shouldn't have breathed in <laughs> for, for a lot years. of years. But what was the thing where you, you inhaled some liquid plastic or some shit? I was getting surgery done on oh, my nose right. and yes. they ignited the Jesus. cannula and the oxygen and it dripped down my throat into my lungs, burnt my face wow. up. And you chose not to sue because you didn't want that sort of aggravation and energy in your life. No, I chose not to appeal. <laughs> we lost the trial. We lost the trial. Yeah. Okay. My lawyer, there's no way we lose this trial. We lost the trial. My lawyer called me up and said, we lost. He said, I'm sorry. I'm like, sorry for what? And he said, we lost. I hung the phone up on him. I never spoke to him again. And I just went in the shower. I had to make a decision. I'm like, Brian, get up and go or you're done. Mm. Right, you, mm-hmm. you know what's going to happen. Because you'll, you'll, yeah, you'll use this to wallow, yes. admire, and right. get aggrieved and pissed off, Absolutely. and everyone owes me something, and I'm going to go out and fuck somebody up. Injustice, right? Yeah, injustice. Yep. Right. So luckily, it wasn't in two minutes. You know, it took a minute or two. Mm-hmm. You know, I, eventually, I was in the shower, looking at the shower head, turning it over <laughs> to the shower head mm-hmm. <laughs> because that's all I had at the right. time. Yeah. Okay. So anyway, you're 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 48. You had, of course, in typical recovered alcoholic fashion, you stumble into a career you previously had no experience with and are working. The restaurants you mentioned are at the highest level yes. of culinary perfection in New York City, which means really probably the highest level that exists in the world of so, kitchens and preparation. Quick story. The sous chef at Boulay, yeah. he comes over to me and his name is Rudy. And he says to me, what are you doing here? I said, what are you talking about? Was he about? French? No, he was, he was Mexican. Okay. I said, what do you mean? What am I doing? I went, no, why are you really here? <laughs> I said, I opened my mouth. He said, don't give me that bullshit about it's your passion. It's the only fucking thing I can do. And I've been doing it since I was knee high to my mother. Why are you here? I'm going to find out. 
And in my head, I'm like, well, because I'm a three-time convicted felon. <laughs> and this is a good place to start. I didn't tell him that, you know. But he, he I felt like a spy. Wow. He thought I was a spy for the boss, I guess. Well, in a way, that's kind of cool. He's saying, like, this is in my blood, man. This is not a yeah. fucking joke. What are yeah. you doing? Do you? Yeah. Des- it's kind of the same way, like, do you deserve to be here, right? <laughs> well, he's like, I'm only here because I have to be here. Why yeah. are you here? Why are you here? <laughs> yeah, that's what he said. So anyway, yeah, what happened? I was... Um, and that's a tough life, man. I mean, that's, yeah, that's so nights hard. on your feet. That's weekends. No when everyone else is recreating, you're yeah. working. Yeah. And it's also like rock and roll today. Mm-hmm. You're either totally fucked up on alcohol and drugs in the restaurant business, or you're completely stone sober yeah. and working a program. Like, yeah. There's really no middle ground anymore, right? Yeah, and you're no longer over the flames. <laughs> You've got other people doing that. So that wasn't working for you. Yeah, so I was on, this, I was on a train and I was really depressed. And, you know, as I try to be really honest with this stuff, um, I was approaching a Chamber Street station and the thought in my head was, get off here, go to that college, try and get admitted or keep going and jump in the river. And what was the college? BMCC. Okay. Which is right on the side of like the, is that the one on the West Side Highway? Yeah. Yeah. Chamber Street. Okay. Start here or go anywhere. So wait a minute. You seem throughout much of your story, like a very... I'm going to say even keeled, which is kind of a funny thing to say about someone who was a heroin and (laughs) crack and uh, God knows what addict and ran a house of prostitution and was incarcerated both federally and at the state level and all kinds of, but you generally seem a pretty even keeled person, even in the worst circumstances of your life. At least that's sort of how you seem to have gotten through them. Yeah. But there's a couple of times in your story where you describe being really suicidal and oh, being yeah. at these this crossroads place. Yeah. Where do you think that comes from? Well, that particular time, I was really ruminating on this vision in my head of me in Tompkins Square Park with a shopping cart. You know? I mean, like that's where you were going to end up? That's where I'm going to end up. Okay, so you were yeah. catastrophizing. You've got to do something dramatic mm. or you got to give it up. Sure. <laughs> there's certainly, there can't be any any stops in between <laughs> uh, either getting a degree or being a homeless bum with a shopping cart in Tonka yes, Square Park. Yes. There's certainly no other possibilities than those two things. No, no. That is the type of thinking I completely understand and identify, identify with. <laughs> yeah. So that's where you were. Yeah. And you were going to go, I mean- I don't know if I was actually going to jump in the river. I know. I was going to say, you know, you're a smart guy. That's, that's probably not sure that you would die if you jumped in the river. Oh, I would. You would? <laughs> these lungs. <laughs> I used to swim in these. I mean, it would take a while, yeah. but I mean, like, yeah. God knows what's in there, but. Yeah, I think it was really cold. So you literally walked into. I walked And in, there's like yeah. someone at the desk. Are you uh, like, I need to enroll? Like, how did you handle security, that? security. <laughs> I'm like, I want to, I want to go to school here. And they're like, you have ID? And I'm like, yeah. They're like, they look at my ID and they say the admissions office is up there. Once you step in the admission office, they just see dollar bills, right? Mm. <laughs> we got someone in the door. No, they're very helpful. Right. <laughs> in really fact, great. they didn't charge you. You I mean, <laughs> Jesus, here they are. They gave you a free education, right? Didn't they didn't they didn't they not charge you for the $750 application fee or something? Oh my god, yeah. Right? Yeah, we have a mutual friend. Her her <laughs> uncle is the president. <laughs> How weird is that? Is why that? they didn't charge you? Yeah, he put my. Oh, thing for I it. thought it was just like an oversight. It was like well, a I sort think, of miraculous I think he was oversight. behind it because she got him to take a look at it or whatever. Wow. Yeah. So yeah. you enrolled. I enrolled. Um, and this was for you had your GED, so this is like basic college. So like, yeah, this is going to be. Uh, this is a community college. I had. I. I had. I tested into remedial math. Algebra. I feel you. You know, what are you talking about? PEMDAC, whatever it is, Pem, whatever it was. Uh, I still don't know. I'm, I'm having a hard time doing my daughter's third grade math homework, okay. so I certainly don't know what PEMDAC is. 
parentheses, you know, the uh, order of operations. Yeah, anyway, we, she just did that. I literally don't know what that <laughs> okay. is. She was like, you know, dad, order of operations. I'm like, she's like addition before subtraction or something. Yeah, yeah, I don't, I don't know. Yeah. I don't get it. What so do we anyway, need that shit for anyway, really? You don't. I mean, li literally. Listen, Jason, I bullshitted my, my way through at least four levels of statistics <laughs> and I still can't multiply. <laughs> Um, so how many years did you attend BMCC? So uh, I went to BMCC and of course, well, let me tell you what happened first. My first Psych 100 class, mm -hmm. I had this professor who was literally, he was solicitating gifts of alcohol. From the students. From the students, Like yeah. if you, if you want to get in good with me, yeah. this is my preferred brand. Yeah. And I'm, I'm, I'm like, what the fuck am I doing? This big <laughs> fat guy asking the Russian kids for alcohol, you know, for a Christmas gift. Right. And I'm like, what the fuck are you doing here? Get out of here. I'm like, you, you really? mean to you or yeah, to him? Yeah, to myself. Oh, okay. I'm like, really, Brian? You're going to quit mm. already? Mm. And then I just Do you think you were looking for something to be aggrieved about to walk of out? Of Right. I still am. <laughs> you still are? <laughs> Everywhere I go. <laughs> Chip on your shoulder. <laughs> Not much. <laughs> Not yeah. so much anymore. But, um, you know, I, I heard this really corny phrase. Um, to you should attack your sobriety like you do your drinking. Mm. I attacked my education the way I did my drugs and drinking, mm -hmm. and I went to school every day, every session, every semester. You know, and I got my. I went from my GED to my master's. Um, I, I enrolled in January of 2010, and I got my master's in May of 2015. Jesus, that's incredible! Oh, wow, I wasn't, I wasn't drinking. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing what we can do, isn't it? Yeah, wow, it's so much fun. Good for you, man. Um, I'm going to play you another clip here. Okay. Speaking of Ed Begley, the father of Ed Begley Jr., who doesn't look anything like his father. So I don't know if there's something going on there, but I don't know. Do you see any resemblance in these two guys? I don't. It's kind of like Prince Harry. This is another thing that resonates in the world we're living in now. This is what's often referred to as the these people clip. This is another thing that has always been a part of American society and is certainly being inflamed right now, which is this concept of kind of who, who belongs, who's, who's real, and who's other. Well, the vote's nine to three in favor of acquittal. I don't understand you people. I mean, all these picky little points you keep bringing up, they don't mean nothing. You saw this kid just like I did. You're not going to tell me you believe that phony story about losing the knife and that business about being at the movies. Look, you know how these people lie? It's born in them. I mean, what the heck? I don't have to tell you. They don't know what the truth is. And let me tell you, they don't need any real big reason to kill someone either. No, sir. They get drunk. Oh, they're real big drinkers, all of them. You know that. And bang, someone's lying in the gutter. Well, nobody's blaming them for it. That's the way they are, by nature. You know what I mean? Violent. Where are you going? Human life don't mean as much to them as it does to us. Look, they're rushing it up and fighting all the time, and if somebody gets killed, so somebody gets killed, they don't care. Oh, sure, there's some good things about them, too. Look, I'm the first one to say that. I've known a couple who are okay, but that's the exception, you know what I mean? Most of them, it's like they have no feelings. They can do anything. What's going on here? Well, I'm trying to tell you. You're making a big mistake, you people. This kid is a liar. I know it. I know all about them. Listen to me. They're no good. There's not a one of them who's any good. I mean, what, what's happening in here? I'm speaking my piece and you, 
Listen to me. Ah. We're, we're this kid on trial here. He's, he's tied. Well, well, don't you know about them? There's a, there's a danger here. These people are dangerous. They're wild. Listen to me. Listen to me. I have. Now sit down and don't open your mouth again. What a crazy, sh- what a shot. Oh I my love God. That. Yeah. I love that scene. The placement, the body it, language. It just pulls back slowly and everyone gets up from the table. And then in the middle of this dialogue or monologue about, about them, the other, these people, he is turned into one of them. He's left alone and he has to confront and you get the feeling that he does confront because Ed Begley is a good enough actor to yeah. convey that scent, that dawning awareness of, wait a minute, he's kind of starting to maybe understand a little bit about the defendant who, in an interesting bit of casting, is not a black person or identifiably Italian or identifiably really any ethnicity, sort of just an ethnic kind of other type, certainly a white ethnic type is how the defendant is shown in the one time we see him at the very beginning of the of the movie. I don't know if we see him at the end when he gets off. God, what an amazing scene. Another amazing thing to watch in the movie is, and if people listening watch this, if you look at the movie in thirds, the way Sidney Lumet changes the camera, it starts with very wide shots and the frame populated with people and not cl- no close-ups. Then as we get into the middle of the film, and the camera is also usually above them, looking down at them as it is here. Mm-hmm. And you get to the middle part of the film, we start to get at eye level, including a couple amazing scenes where when they're going around the table and everyone has to say why they think he's guilty, there's a couple of them that are looking directly at you as a viewer and kind of implicating you in what's going on. And do you believe what I'm saying or not? Oh, well, uh, I don't know. I started to be conventional very early in the case. You see, I was looking for a motive. That's very important because if you don't have a motive, where's your case, right? Uh, Anyway, that um, testimony from those people in the apartment across the hall from the kids' apartment, that was very powerful. Uh, Didn't they say something about a a fight, an argument between the old man and the son around about um, 7 o'clock that night? I mean, I could be wrong, but I... It was 8 o'clock. It was 8 o'clock, that's right. They heard an argument. They couldn't hear what it was about. Then they heard the father hit the boy twice. (coughs) Finally, they saw the boy run angrily out of the house. What does that prove? Don't exactly prove anything. It's just part of the picture. You said it provided a motive. And the prosecuting attorney said the same thing. I don't think that was a very strong motive. This boy's been hit so many times in his life that violence is practically a, a normal state of affairs with him. And then in the final third of the movie, the camera's positioned below everyone. It's shooting up at their faces, and the frame is occupied with a lot of close-ups, and the room is getting smaller and more claustrophobic, and the tension is being ratcheted up, and the lighting has changed, too, because everything is taking place in real time, so we go from the morning to the afternoon to the evening. Yes. And all of these things, and with the way City Lumet is moving the camera in that shot particularly— it just underscores kind of what the writing is about, which is so good and about so many things. It's very theatrical because it was a play first, a teleplay. But all of these things together are so powerful still, so many years after the movie came out. 
A very powerful movie. Did you know that there are a couple of hilarious uh, episodes of other shows that were inspired by 12 Angry Men? Tell me. Okay. So let's start a little bit closer to the time the movie came out. It inspired an episode of The Andy Griffith Show. Oh, one of my favorites. Again, the single father, Jesus Christ. <laughs> yeah, we're going to get to your amazingly Freudian selections in the Latchkey TV segment, oh which uh, were, were so, so <laughs> hilariously brilliant. But this is an episode of The Andy Griffith Show, uh, and you might recognize the defendant, and certainly he's he, people will recognize him just through voice alone here. Well, I was watching a movie on TV, and the set went out on me. It was about 9 o'clock. I figured Bryce's was still open, so I'd take the set down there, have it repaired, and get it back by morning. Go on. When I got down there, the front door was locked. I saw a light around the back, so I went around the alley, and the back door was open. I figured somebody was in there, so I took the set and went in. Wasn't nobody there. Go on. Well, I was coming out of the place, and that's when Charles Keyes called out to me. I figured this has got to look bad me coming out with the set so I I beat it your witness you talk about a fairy story huh the door was open that's better than a fairy story oh boy isn't that great yeah so Aunt B was the Henry Fonda lone holdout uh huh and she eventually wins she over the rest everyone? of the jury. Okay. And Jack Nicholson is able to walk free and go on to the rest of his life. Okay. This is a very good, almost shot-by-shot shot <laughs> remake of many of the famous scenes done on the Amy uh, Inside Amy Schumer Show. And I will apologize for the crassness of the description, but this is what it's about. This is, these are jurors trying to determine what the size of Amy's dildo has to do with her fuckability. Okay, Amy. Love Amy. She's great. Why else would she have that dildo they found in her green room? Supposedly hot and f***able girl. Huh? The one she bought that was the size of a midget's fist? Why do you need one of those if guys want to f*** you? Hmm? 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 Let's talk about that. All right, let's talk about it. Let's get it in here and take a look at it. You want to see the dildo? You want to see the dildo? He's, see the dildo. <laughs> He's also oh, wearing oh, the polo shirt with the tie <laughs> like uh, Mark yeah, Balsa. Exactly. I'm, so I'm sick of it. I've seen it 10 times. I'm sick of it. The gentleman has a right to see the exhibits and evidence. Dildo is pretty good evidence. Oh no my God, this is great. God, it looks like a femur. I mean, why even make those things? <laughs> Women don't need orgasms. That's science. <laughs> <laughs> Lots of people have them. I have one. Hey, hey, what's the big idea? He pulled out a dildo. Oh, bother. It's my wife's. She doesn't use it because she's alone. Quite the opposite, actually. We use it, and we love it. You must be hung like a hamster. I am perfectly average. <laughs> I have a donkey dick. Hey, let's take another vote. If anybody thinks that Amy Schumer shouldn't be on the TV because she's not hot enough for whatever reason... Raise your hands. <laughs> and those who think that she is hot enough? <laughs> You're on board with the toad now? <laughs> I wanted to f Natalie from Facts of Life. Oh, no. I did. I wanted to f her, and I wanted to fall asleep with my head on her stomach. <laughs> and Amy is hotter than Natalie. <laughs> so, I'm sorry. But I'd f both of them. And I want to f Blake Shelton. Has the world gone mad? <laughs> this girl thinks she deserves to be on this camera? She's not a 10! Maybe you're not a 10 either. You bad! Hey, 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 hey. 
you. You really mean that? <laughs> you really right. want to <laughs> me? Or are you just being a tease? That's a meticulous recreation. That was really done well. <laughs> oh, Paul Giamatti, great acting. So anyway, that's just to show you that the 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 movie resonates in popular culture after all these years. Another few fun pop cultural facts I will give you, Brian, about Twelve Angry Men. Five of the twelve jurors have guest starred on the Twilight Zone. Whoa! Do you know who they are? Well, let's talk about the fact that I cannot stand Paul Giamatti, and you know why? I don't know why. Because of his father. Ah, uh, <laughs> uh, baseball commissioner A. Bartlett Giamatti. Yeah. What did he ever do to you? He was a Steinbrenner basher. Oh, my he God. Just... <laughs> Jesus. No, nah, actually, it's sideways. Are we supposed to pretend that George Steinbrenner <laughs> was some force for good in the world? It's really sideways that did it for me. Anyway, <laughs> go ahead. Bo. You mean you didn't like him celebrating- uh, The wine country? No. The wine country? Yeah, I know. That's one of those movies people are- It's like, that's how I feel about a marriage story right now. I'm like- uh -huh. My mom got divorced twice. I don't want to go see fucking two movie stars pretend to be divorced on screen. Right, I'm sorry. Yeah, That's not going to really fun. do anything for me. Yeah. Anyway, Jack Klugman, uh -huh. E.G. Marshall, Jack Warden, John Fiedler, who most people know as the voice of Piglet from Winnie the Pooh. <laughs> Piglet, we realize you are a hero. Oh, I've never done anything great. And Edward Binns all appeared on The Twilight Zone. Oh, yeah. okay. Just so you know. Oh, just a couple of things about the budget. $350,000 hmm. to shoot this movie. I think they rehearsed for two weeks and shot for four weeks. The budget was so low that there were two instances where that came up. The first was the first day that the actors came on the set. All the shots that show outside the windows and show that kind of courtyard uh -huh. surrounded by supposedly grand gothic New York City court buildings... They didn't really have the budget to do justice to the models or the backdrops the way they were painted. And when Henry Fonda came onto the set for the very first day, and keep in mind, this is Sidney Lumet's first feature film, and it's fucking Henry Fonda. And Henry Fonda goes, Jesus Christ, Sidney, those backdrops look like shit. <laughs> and he thought, oh. That's but I amazing. do have a question. Yes. I want to know, do you think it's possible looking out that window to see the Woolworth building? Hey, that the Woolworth building? That's right. I'm kind of thinking the municipal building would be in the way. I don't know, Brian. Is this the way your mind works? <laughs> exactly Jesus. the way my mind works. <laughs> That's going to be a tough way to go through life. <laughs> it is. You're sitting there going like, oh, my God, he wouldn't be able to see the Woolworth building. He cannot building. see the Woolworth building. <laughs> I'm that guy. Oh, we have to play, for me, the clip that I was just blown away by. As I said, watching it this time, I was... Absolutely impressed with Henry Fonda and everyone in the movie, but I really, and I think because I knew that you and I were going to be talking about this and I'm familiar with your story and I read your memoir, a lot of which is about uh, a lack of paternal role models or any male role models, yeah. which is definitely something that I grew up with as well. And that still comes up and pops up in my life now at 50 years old, mm. childhood things. You don't ever really get away from that stuff. And I think for me, it's part of the things that I've had to learn in the last 16 years are about how to live. And I guess in my mind, I think, oh, that's what a dad teaches a son. Right. Which isn't really fair to the moms of the world who have as much, if not more, to do with that stuff, uh, or certainly can. But probably growing up, 
the way we did, we don't have a lot of that instruction. We're not given the the, the tools or the rule book always. Well, you know, I, I could definitely um, back your argument up without um, upsetting any moms. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I don't know, a few years back, there was uh, this case in India, well, these cases in India of uh, juvenile elephants going crazy, mm-hmm. raping hippos, um, destroying villages, and nobody could figure what was going on until someone made the point that there's no male role models. They've all been killed for their ivory. Mm. So they didn't know how to go through must. They mm. didn't know, you know, the hierarchy or mm-hmm, anything, mm-hmm. you know, because there were no male role models. Mm. That's boy, if that's not us. <laughs> <laughs> and so Lee J. Cobb's character was this big, brawling, loud, scary man. Like, that's how child, I would think of it as a sort of like father, you know, like the coda to that incredible setup where he tells that amazing story of watching his son lose a fight, yeah. teaching him a lesson, and then the son punching him, big kid, just the way uh, he says that. Big, big kid. kid, not a pussy. And you come to realize that's who he's putting on trial. Like, he's trying he's to hurt. validate his guilt. He's hurt. Yeah. I mean, he's he's guilty. He's guilty. Yeah. Yes. You know what really bothers me is that no one, the, the pit, dropping of the photo impacted me so deeply, oh and I never God. hear anything about that. That's an amazing... So Lee Jacob's character has this kind of leather, large leather wallet or folio that he carries. And early on, the E.G. Marshall stockbroker character is kind of the stuffy upper middle class guy. Uh, when Lee Jacob learns that he's a stockbroker, he says, oh, I got a messenger service. I run a messenger service, the Beck and Call Company. My name is my wife's idea. Got 37 men working. Started with nothing. Takes out a business card, yeah, which E.G. Yeah, Marshall them. does not take. Ignores them. And then he kind of puts it back into his little folio. And then he takes the folio out again in the scene we heard earlier, where he's telling the story about his son. And he has the picture of him and his son in the folio. And then it comes up again here uh, in this scene. I'm telling you, I've got all the facts here. Here. Uh-huh. Well, that's it. That's the whole case. Well? Say something! You lousy bunch of bleeding hearts. You're not going to intimidate me. I'm entitled to my opinion. When he says not guilty, not guilty, I feel he's saying it to his son. Oh. That's what I got from that. Definitely. How did he not get nominated for that? I don't know. I wasn't around. (laughs) (laughs) Don't know what was going on back then. Oh, my God. That's an incredible scene. Yeah. I've got goosebumps. Damn. Lee J. Cobb. Incredible. Jason Silo. Incredible. No, not really. Not like (laughs) that. What I love about him in there, that that weird, that choice of like putting his hand back around his neck 
It's like things like that. So many small do. They're like, just give you this sense that he's tortured by something inside of him, Mm -hmm. which as a man, he can't get out. Yep. Which I think all men understand. I just had this conversation with my wife the other day who was like, you guys laugh at us for crying at commercials, but like we get it out. (laughs) You hold on to it for like five years and then it pops out in some huge dramatic storm of tears. And then you're like, wow. I feel better. I really feel better. (laughs) She's got a good point. She has a very good point. Yeah. Okay, so you wanted to tell me the story of your son, who is yeah. an attorney. Now, did, is that because of his experiences growing up as your child that he was interested in criminal justice? But that's what he tells me. Amazing. I believe what he says. I don't want you know, but he's he you know he he's very accomplished and he's done all this stuff by himself. You know, that's I, amazing. I, I did offer him to support that I could when I got out of prison. He was mm-hmm. around thirteen or fourteen, wow. and I tried to be you know, as crazy as I was, the best role model that I could be. Mm-hmm. wasn't all, always great. Um, but he did, you know, he put a lot of hard work into this and he got through it and he became attorney. And he interned for the, for, uh, right? That was mm-hmm. the DA. But um, his number two at the time was And my son went in and interned at the DA's office and he did it. My son is um, a very ironic mm-hmm. guy as a fuck you to you know? Did Know that he was your son? Well, my son had some interaction with him where he identified himself as Cameron Thompson, but not as my son. Okay. Yeah. My son's done some heroic stuff like that. Yeah. That's amazing. <laughs> um, another case, uh, the guys who beat me on the trial for the uh, the fire, the burning. Yes. And the, yeah. He went to the office and he picked up a $5 million settlement check. <laughs> and I believe he told the attorney that he was my son, <laughs> you know? So yeah, he, he really good. he gets it. He gets the it apple doesn't fall far from the no, tree. No, definitely not. Even if the tree is growing in Lewisburg <laughs> for many of the years when the apples yeah. are being raised up. Yes. How old was he when you went into prison? Ah, uh, six. And and he was thirteen when you came out. Thirteen, fourteen. <sighs> when I came, yeah, yeah. Man, I know you've you've um you've had fun pointing out to me a couple of times that we've had prison conversations on the show related to movie scenes and oh, things God, of that sort, yes. and you're always like drives you crazy yes. because. None of them are realistically right. portraying. Is there a movie that you think is as close as possible to the real experience? Huh. That's interesting. I've never thought about that. Let's go through some prison movies. Okay. Bad Boys, Sean Penn. Way too violent for that age group. So you don't think the teens in like the youth facility are- I like... started at 13, Jason. <sighs> Jesus. <laughs> too violent, huh? Yeah. Okay. I mean, what are the other iconic prison movies- I mean, you have the big sort of silly Hollywood ones like uh, Shawshank Redemption. I would say that's more honest. Really? Yes, because, well, not with the, with the escape part, yeah. but with the, with the, the civility, day-to-day. you know, the mm. day-to-day living. That's people's worlds. That's their lives. Mm-hmm. You're not going to impinge upon that and bring this bullshit into their mm-hmm. life and get away with it, right? Right. So these old guys, they're quiet and, you know, they exist, mm-hmm. but don't fuck with their lives. Right. You know? But what about all the challenges that you write about here where it's like, it's always the fucking phone. It's like people are getting their faces slashed open over the phone. Like those challenges don't seem to be about like, hey, let's just live and let live here. Uh, Why is that a freighted place? And certainly you write about, and if you read anything about this, there's plenty of people that will point this out that you're going to be stepped to and challenged. You write yourself that- you know you have to react a certain way. Not that you want to do this. Okay. But you know you have to do this. Otherwise, there's going to be more significant problems. So we're going to break this down. There's jail and there's prison. Okay. Jail, nobody knows what's going on. Right. 
Everybody's on edge and everybody's willing to pull the trigger. Okay. Right? Prison, you have an established period of time mm -hmm. that you're going to be there. Mm -hmm. You know what your future is mm -hmm. and you know you want to be comfortable. Right. You make your mark in jail mm -hmm. and you live your life in prison. Okay. So you, jail does not really carry over to prison. Jail life does not carry over to prison life. If it does, those people end up getting hurt, killed, you know. So that's why a place like Rikers is a more violent oh place God, than a yeah. federal Please, penitentiary. Even a state prison, Rikers mm. is incredibly insane. Mm. You know, and the people who are running Rikers are one step away from being in Rikers. Right. You know, and I can say this from experience. Sure. You know? Yeah, I mean, there's so many stories of obviously contraband and prostitution and the, the idea that you can't get anything that you want in prison through corruption uh, and bribery is not true, right? Let's take the case of Eddie Antoine. You know who he is? Eddie Antoine. Crazy Eddie. Crazy Eddie, yeah. yeah. Were Stand you in jail with him? Yeah, I was. <laughs> I was in federal prison with him. Really? Standing before the judge. He's in, let's just take a number. He's in prison in three years, mm -hmm. right? Mr. Antoine, how do you have a two-year-old son? Your Honor, how do you think I have a two-year-old son? <laughs> conjugal visit, maybe. There's no conjugal There's visits no. in the feds. <laughs> the federal prisons build the trailers for conjugal visits in the state. I'm disappointed, Brian. I would have thought Crazy Eddie would have a much sharper rejoinder to the judge in uh, that moment. He's a he's a mouse in there. <laughs> did he die in prison or did he get out? I don't. I left him in prison. Where where was this in Lewisburg? I was in Otisville with him. Oh, in Otisville, yeah, and he was in charge of the um, the kosher Jewish meals. So was, was Otisville was not housing violent offenders? It's a medium Otisville security prison? Was a medium, but it was also utilized us pre-trial. Mm. So they would keep inmates separated, mm -hmm. right? Either they're on the same case or they've had fights. Mm -hmm. So they would switch them back and forth between MCC and Otisville. Mm -hmm. So there was a, um, a cadre there of pre-trial, mm -hmm. well, a couple. There was a cadre of, of sentences made and the rest right. was pre-trial. Yeah. So you could go to prison- and mind your own business and not get into physical altercations. Right. As long as, yeah. You're willing to stand up for yourself? Absolutely. Right. But that's going to involve a physical altercation. No. No. no? Well, you've probably established this beforehand. Mm -hmm. And if you come into prison and nobody knows you and you're questionable. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. One of the things that's interesting in your book that you write about a lot is the, 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 the rep. And there's a lot of kind of tragically funny scenarios throughout your memoir where you're talking about times when people assumed or presumed that you were a rat because of really minute circumstances yeah. such as you showed up one day in a new jail or prison and you had some drugs and shared them with a guy yeah, yeah, and yeah, then the yeah. next day everybody got piss tested. <laughs> so in the jail mentality is like, that dude is a yeah. rat because we all got piss tested even after he shared his drugs with us. No, that no, makes no I sense. shared him with someone else. All the white guys got piss tested. I got high with some Latin Kings. The guys I got high with didn't get piss tested. Right. So the white guys presumed that you <laughs> ratted them out, even though you didn't give them any. This is this is like they didn't even know who I was at this so point. So you're worried about like the verisimilitude of how you could see the building through 60 Center <laughs> Street, like in jail. That must really drive you crazy if you're like, what the fuck are you guys talking about? It makes no sense. Like, why would I rat you out for something that I had? Like, this, doesn't make any sense. But you have to deal with that. Really build prisons for people who make sense. <laughs> 
But like that's the yeah, type of yeah, logical game yeah. that you're like, Guys, you fucking not, deal with that. Yeah. Because yeah. <laughs> that's a bad thing to have pinned to you, right. obviously. So then I think I talk about it in the book. The guys who I did get high with now are like, wait a second. How come all the white guys got piss tested, but we didn't? Right. It's, it's this guy setting us up for something bigger. Right. So, so I'm I, sensing it's not the most trusting environment. So they, <laughs> they made me walk into the yard with, an, with a bag that had a knife in it. And this was a test. Yeah. To see if you would do it. Yeah. Because if you were a narc or a rat or working for the for the prison, yeah. like if you were an informant, you wouldn't do that. Is that their is that I don't their know. belief? But their belief is that if I had if I thought I had a knife in there, mm-hmm. that they would come and get them during the wreck period and they'd probably open the bag and find nothing, and then it would be established that I was a rat, right? Mm. So when they gave me the bag, they said, Brian, you have to take this in the yard. We got a beef tonight, and there's no way I can get through security with it. Mm-hmm. I'm like, oh, fuck. I can't say no, mm-hmm. you know? And it was like one of the gang leaders. But see, know? how do you know you can't say no? Oh, I know. Just from experience, <laughs> yeah. like life experience? Yeah. Or jail, prison experience? Yeah, so if I say no, then I'm being a pussy, mm-hmm. right? Um, and I kind of felt like I was being tested. I have nothing to hide. I know I'm going to do time and I'm not going to mm-hmm. have any questions about my, <laughs> you know. And then one of the other times it was, uh, you also had this weird um, thing where you ended up working these kind of straight jobs when you were anything but, like you worked at the camera store in <laughs> oh, Little yeah. Italy. No, in uh, Chambers Camera and Reed and Broadway. Okay. Yeah. So, which sounds like this, this kind of, it's interesting for your psychology as we'll get to when we go to your um, Latchkey TV clips uh-huh. all featuring... Um, single fathers raising male children. I'm sure there's, I'm sure there's nothing going on there. But (laughs) similarly, these couple of jobs that you note kind of had this family environment. Oh yeah. Including at the, what was it? The sculpture shop or the the, the art supply store, which was literally like a husband and a wife. Yeah. Who lived, it was, they lived there. They did. They worked there. Judith Baldwin. And you did well in those places. I did. And not only did you do well, but when you worked at the camera store, you became friendly with a fed. The Fed, the DA, city council members. <laughs> so why yeah. were all these guys coming in the camera shop? Because it's close to the courtrooms we, and we, everything down we, there? Or? We were developing film. I mean, we were developing surveillance photos for the FBI, right? They didn't do this themselves in-house? No. And I'm like literally <laughs> that have- seems like a bad idea for the I FBI. have surveillance photos, right? <laughs> uh, I, I see who they're surveilling, what clubs they're surveilling. Like- um, Jennifer Levin, do you remember her? Sure. Like, I saw the body the oh next day. Oh, my God. They developed the photos they at the camera shop? Yes. Oh it was horrible, God. Jason. <laughs> Black and blue, you know. That is terrible. But, um, you know, just all these little things that, you know. Tell me the story of the, the, the wasn't the Fed, the guy. Jim who, Nowens. Is he still alive? I hope so. I hope he lives forever. And he basically assisted you in the double murder. <laughs> oh, no, sorry. Excuse That's a conspiracy. Me. Let me Jason. rephrase that, Your Honor. <laughs> no, he vouched for you and helped you get get out okay. of that, didn't he? So what happened was, um, you know, I got arrested, and uh, Jim and I were working on a couple things, you know, just between us and techniques and stuff, like f- photographic techniques. Yeah, yeah. Okay, like new stuff at the time. So he comes in and he's like, "Where's Brian?" And my boss is like, "Ah, Jim, it's a long story." And he tells him. Mm. And so to Jim, it sounds a little familiar. And Jim goes and does some investigating. And basically, now this is what, this also caused me a little issue in prison. Mm -hmm. Well, it really offended me in prison. It wasn't an issue for me. 
was Jim Nowens had Mickey Featherstone, mm. who was a West. Yep. Yeah. Who was set up. To use the term you don't like to use. <laughs> you don't like to say Westies. But yeah, because it's a media name. That's another that so you know how the way you know how I was saying before, like the Chinese the Chinatown gangs have a certain kind uh-huh. of like um, cachet, like a elan, like yeah. their style. When you read about like the Westies though, man, that's like real 70s gang okay. shit that I both love and am terrified so by. So how about why this? are they the most terrifying? How about this? Because you guys are ruthless. You Irish motherfuckers are ruthless. Try Jimmy Coonan. Mm-hmm. 48, when, first, when 48 Hours came out, yeah. Jack Bauer, mm-hmm. he and I used to sit together every Monday night and watch it. Mm-hmm. Nothing, it was like he was having sex. <laughs> he was giggling, so excited. Why? He's a fucking maniac. I love him. He's so fucking crazy. <laughs> but he was so excited. You're talking the, about 24. 24, yes. 48 hours. I'm thinking about the first 48. Oh, the first 48. Okay. Yeah, yeah 24. Like, wow, if he 24, watched first 48, he was so excited. That's yeah. even more morbid. But almost orgasmic. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah. Did you hang out in those bars in Hell's Kitchen no, in I the didn't. 70s? No? I did not, no. No? No. I'd like to think of you there. I though. was in Chinatown and clubs downtown. You could have ended up in the Irish mob up there. I would probably ended up dead. Yeah. <laughs> was, That's a pretty ruthless- I wasn't good at taking orders. Have you seen any of the- um, Have you seen or read any of the Whitey Bulger documentaries or books uh, that are out? Well, you know, I did a, all my federal time with those guys, you know, so right. Whitey Bulger was- fucking cancerous when mm. I was in prison. Right. You know, um, but I've, yeah, I've read a bunch of stuff on Were that. Were you in prison with, uh, when John Connolly was in prison? I wasn't Or with, he was put somewhere probably yeah, different. I wasn't with him. I wasn't with Shay. Um, I was with a bunch of guys uh, from Charlestown. Um, mm. Some Southie guys, you know, mostly townies, Charlestown. Mm. Yeah. Nothing like the movie. No. But we were talking about, uh, what were we talking about? Oh, the camera shop. Nowens. Yes. So Nowens has Mickey Featherstone in the safe house in Long Island. Mm-hmm. He's testifying on a case for the feds, and he's telling Jim Nowens something other than Brian killed these guys. Yeah, so how did he have knowledge of this murder in Chinatown? Okay, this is very confusing. So there was a period, and I think they may even reference it in State of Grace to some degree. Okay, great There's movie. a period in time when... The mob's doing hits for Irish, and Irish are doing hits for the mob. To confuse the authorities. To confuse the easily confused That's NYPD. Smart. Yeah. That's smart. Yeah. So Johnny was a contract killing. Mm-hmm. Johnny was a contract killing. Um, and These killings took place at the same time? The two murders? Yeah. The guy walked into the bar, shot Johnny in the head, turned out to walk out, and Johnny's nephew walked in the bar. And he was just- Did uh, he know he was Johnny's nephew? Well, he's he, just someone who saw I don't, the guy. Yeah. I don't know if he knew he was Johnny's wow. nephew because I don't know who the guy is. Right. So I don't know who he know. <laughs> but mm-hmm. he killed Johnny. He turned to leave and his nephew walked in the bar and his nephew ended up getting killed. Wow. Yeah. But anyway, so Jim Nowens had Mickey Featherstone. Mm-hmm. Mickey Featherstone was telling him something else about this story. So, so in other words, so Jim if Bo- I can paraphrase, the Irish mob is the are the people who killed your two friends in the Chinatown bar. No. Because how, how <laughs> yeah. else would Mickey Featherstone That's know that you didn't do it? Mickey Featherstone has knowledge of who committed the murder. Right. And it's not me. Right. Yeah. Right. So but, def- but wouldn't, it, but no, wouldn't, no. It, wouldn't it connect that he has knowledge because it was the Westies, as you just said, if they were doing killings for each other to confuse I, the authorities? Listen, I have no idea who did it. I don't know what you're trying to do to me. <laughs> um, no. Wait, the two guys that were killed were Chinese? Chinese. Or, right. So doesn't the theory hold up that 
to confuse the authorities? They would use no, it does. Irish and that Irish theory thing? holds up. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Okay. But I don't know the answer to okay. that. Um, no, I'm not trying to say that you know the answer. Yeah. So anyway, he knew enough to know you didn't do it. Right. So the first time he came, um, basically told him, fuck you. You know, my lawyer told me, he said, Brian, they're going to hang you. Mm. You know, um, he said, you know, the feds tried to get involved and, and he's not going for it, blah, blah, blah. So, you know, we went through everything, the jury selection. Uh, Were you incarcerated the whole time awaiting trial or did time. you get out? I got out. My bail started at $2 million. I think by the third judge. Two um, million. Jesus. The third judge was like, I don't know who's going to believe this story, but good luck. <laughs> eventually, they lowered my bell. Oh, my God. To one million, which was 100,000. Some girl put up her grandmother's house. My dad right. took out a loan, and they put the money up. Um, so and anyway, they offered you various plea, plea deals, which were you ever. Jason, uh, they went from 25 to life to mm -hmm. four and a half to nine. My now, lawyer, you're a lawyer, probably advise you to take four and a half to nine because you'd probably be out in two. And I fired him on the spot. Wow. Because he said, Brian, take the... F I said, I didn't do it. I've been telling you for a year I didn't right. commit these murders. He said, Brian, you have to take four and a half mm -hmm. to nine. I said, how am I going to do that time? Right. I said, I'm going to go upstate for two murders for four and a half mm -hmm. years? Are you kidding me? Somebody's going to kill me. <laughs> <laughs> in the counterintuitive math of prison. Yeah. So you'll no. be like, wait, he's the guy that did that? Well, he must be because he took the plea deal, so that we definitely have work. to kill him. Yeah. Jesus. No, that didn't work for me. God. Anyway, the day of the trial, the DA's not there. Everybody's there. The DA's late. He comes in, and you know the judge starts to admonish him on his lateness. Then he says, Your Honor, I need to speak to you. He points to the stenographer, says mm -hmm. her. Points to me and my attorney, says him and him in your chambers um, right away. Then the judge asks us, is that okay with you? And I'm like, yeah. So we go in his chambers, we sit down, and um, the judge, I think his name was, I don't remember his name at this point. He said, um, so go ahead, tell me what we're in here for. He said, at this point, the state would like to drop the charges against Mr. Thompson. And the judge was like, oh, really? He's like, you've got to do something. You've got to do better, <laughs> do better than, than, that. than that. Yeah, that's literally. He wants you, to know why. Yeah, you got to do better than that. Wow. He said, well, Your Honor, you know, we've been going, reviewing uh, Brian's case, and it really seems like he's made an effort to turn his life around and that he has indeed been working, you know, these different various jobs over these past six years and since his release from prison, blah, mm -hmm. blah, blah. And at this time, we no uh, longer choose to. Right, you know, because that answer avoids having to admit I'm the obvious which is someone other than me or was this the DA this was saying this my balls are in a vice and right. I have no choice and I'm right. a little bitch and I'm kind of <laughs> yeah so and my lawyer threw in there never to prosecute him again right. and he said and never to prosecute him again on these charges Jesus and that was the end of that nightmare and there I was on a cliff how long did that last <laughs> all through over a year oh my god yeah. but you weren't sober then I wasn't even close to something. So you weren't really sweating it that much? <laughs> but did I say uh, when they dropped the charges, I was lost. Yeah. Now what do you do? I was like, fuck, now I've got to deal with life. Yeah, go back to the camera store. Jason, I was such a maniac at that point. I'd burned every bridge I ever had. It's funny because doing all the sort of prison-related reading that I like to do, I was reading through your story and I your, your, your sort of empathetic friendship with... Uh, with the Fed, now or whatever his name Jim is. Jim Nowens. Jim Nowens. And then you have another couple times where you sort of where, where where understandably, because of the type of person you are, people gravitate to you and sort of and there's another time when you sort of had a close 
you had some relationship with either another Fed or another, I can't remember what it was. I was in the hole. The FBI and an associate warden had me. And they were questioning me mm-hmm. on something that had happened in the institution. That's the right. Night before. That's right. And again, it was gang related. Right. I, which you knew about. Yeah. But of course, it. in the code, you're yeah. never going to tell them right. about it. So they have me there. And they know you know. Yeah. And they're putting the screws to me, you know, mm-hmm. some skinny white guy. They mm-hmm. don't know me, you know, from a hole in the wall. They mm-hmm. think that I'm going to tell them what they want to know. And so there's an FBI agent there. And why and is he there? Because they're going to press federal charges against this gang. Oh, okay. They go hard in there, you know. They're going to press federal. Tr- wasn't this like a phone slicing or something? Oh, no, that that's another one. Uh, but the phones, that was fun. Oh, what, was the, what was this one for? What, what, did, what, did you, what had you supposedly observed? Uh, the beatdown. They, they severely beat this guy. Wow. Put the boats to and, and because it occurs in a federal penitentiary, you can be charged? Oh, yeah. F- Jesus. Constantly, the FBI? Constantly getting federal charges in there. So yeah. it was basically just keeping these guys incarcerated for as long as yeah, possible. Absolutely. So they did a brutal beating. I'm going to charge him with attempted right. murder. They, they've got factories in all the prisons. Jesus. But um, what I told him was, the guy's like, you know, tell us what... Tell, I'm like, dude, I got nothing to say to you. And mm-hmm. he's like, well, you know, with these tough guys, you know, you got to do this time. Mm-hmm. You got to cooperate with us. I said, where are you going to be in 10 years? Mm-hmm. And the um, the AW says to me, I'm going to be retired. Where are you going to be? I said, I'm going to be right here telling the guy who takes your place to go fuck himself. <laughs> right. <laughs> Oh my God, Brian! Jesus, the, there's a time and a place the slicing, for these comments. The slicing thing—that was <laughs> ugly. Yeah, yeah. So the slicing thing was another one where you saw it. I was on the this phone. This is a phone shit again. And what I is said, the deal? I mean, I guess it's your, it's your only connection to the outside world. Yeah. Oh yeah. But I think you, it was you who said, and wasn't it you who made the phone lists, which struck me as an extremely sensible way to organize right. this, so that guys we could just cut out all the unnecessary slicing right. of each other's faces <laughs> if we just simply. Follow the fucking list. Yeah. Then some one night someone fucked with our list and I had to take care of him. Right. So right. like. Yeah. But yeah. So I was on the phone with. No, it was, it was a low key Jamaican guy. Oh, he's the one who got sliced. He was getting bullied by a, oh. a crack dealer from North Carolina. Oh, okay. No, but he sliced the crack dealer. Oh, he did? Well, good but for he him. he got pushed into it. Yeah. Yeah. But the kid was like really studious, you mm. know, West Indian kid. Yeah. But I was on the phone and I said, okay, I got to go. Somebody just got their face ripped. Right. <laughs> And they're recording it, so they so they know you saw it. Yeah, I gotta go. They came to my cell and they said, "Did you witness?" I said, "I think you said I gotta go. Shit's about to jump off." (laughs) Something like that. So they're like, "Uh, "Brian, we know you saw what happened because you said this." I don't know what you're talking about. Yeah, you seem like you were effective at navigating like jailhouse lawyering amongst (laughs) your fellow like like you didn't. It seems like it would be really easy to fall prey to some horrible circumstances through just like word of mouth that's completely unfounded oh yeah yeah you know what i mean like how do you combat false information you could really fuck with another guy by spreading a word by being a believable guy like how do you that happens too you know it does absolutely that's gotta be so oh that that would be like the stuff that probably eats away at your soul over time Mm. seeing like that story of the the studious polite nice guy who's pushed into this violent act that he otherwise would never probably commit yeah yeah that's got to be yeah, terrible. And, and, you know, while I didn't project any fear in there, mm-hmm. I was scared to fucking death. I didn't want to do any more time. I didn't want to hurt anybody. I didn't want to get hurt. You know, but you can't let anybody know that, right? What if jail was more empathetic and the men could express their feelings to each other? Then we'd be in Sweden or something. Yeah. With a nice, like, 
peak S- desk setup and a, a uh, sound studio, recording studio. <laughs> the own. We'd probably be recording this podcast from prison because you'd be able to like have visitors to bring in all this all this material. Hello. Uh, then let's get to our Latchkey TV segment, which was brilliant. I sent Brian an email. I said, we do this thing where we talk about sort of what your formative television experiences were. <laughs> and <laughs> tell me what you realized about, well, first of all, let me list some of them. We'll play some of them in good time. But you said, my three sons, Family Affair, Courtship of Eddie's Father, and Bonanza. And these were all shows that I think were on like PIX or whatever, yeah. WOR, local New York City. And also Father Knows Best. And Fathers Knows Best. Now, what did you realize only after the fact, only now, what all of those shows have in common? I was totally fucked. And I need more therapy. It was all single fathers doing a great job raising kids. Yep. Isn't that amazing? And I had no idea. <laughs> I was discussing it with my sister. And she's like, you think? <laughs> that's just one of those brilliant things where wow. you're, you're sort of like, wow, that's so, I never realized that. <laughs> oh, my God. So... When I when I um, got these clips, oh my god, dude! I had like a I had like a like a flashback of just these theme songs, <laughs> you know, when you're a kid and you're home from school or yeah. wherever it is, and like these are the shows. Oh man! Like that drawing this of the makes shoes. Me happy. Yes. Fred McMurray. Uh, Uncle Charlie. That was so comforting, that tapping It was. You know, and it's funny. I think, like, when you're living in difficult circumstances, there is a comforting familiarity in the 22-minute, self-contained, <laughs> half-hour sitcom universe yes, where everything is. is going to be okay. And these shows of yours all do feature single fathers in Bonanza, by the way, uh-huh. which I did not realize. Yeah. They all have different mothers. What the <laughs> hell was going on with that? Was that how difficult life was? Ben was a player. <laughs> I mean, did they ever explain? I didn't I didn't really watch Bonanza. Did they explain how all the wives died? Is there something we should I don't, know about I don't remember Lauren that. Green? Or? Maybe I blocked it. <laughs> God, I love this. <laughs> what a cast. Yeah. Adam. <laughs> he disappeared later. Well, he had the beard. He was in um, he was uh, in one of those MD shows. Yeah, it? yeah. Right. Um, but later, he wasn't in the latest. Oh, he wasn't? Yeah. It was Look at Michael Landon. is like yeah. a boy. <laughs> Owen Green. <laughs> Special guest star, Everyone. Everett Sloan. What's over them yonder hills? Oh, my God. Bonanza. Now, I wasn't a Bonanza kid. I don't know anything about Bonanza. So he's oh, raising really? three sons by himself. Yeah, on the Ponderosa. And what kind of what, what are the situations they get into? Oh, well, they're, they are everything that's right in the world. All three of them. All four of them, including the father. So they're all morally upright and upstanding, yes. and they support each they, other. They and they rescue everyone. Oh, okay. Hop Singh is their cook. Wow. Yeah. Jeez. Yeah, they take care of everyone. Always the women in distress. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the Cartwrights take care of it all. Now, here's a fascinating one. This one is one of the weirder shows of, I guess, the 60s or 70s. The Courtship of Eddie's Father. I think that's where my Asian thing started. <laughs> Am I allowed to say that? <laughs> it's, it's your pod, man. I can sing this song for you. People, let me tell you about my best. I don't know if we have too many rules or not or not. That was me. Maybe we have oh, too many people. Concerned. 
and we need more room. You wanted to be like walking with your Nehru jacketed dad on a Malibu seacoast talking. So how do you feel? I feel sad when I see this. Bill Bixby? Did you ever try to think of just nothing? Yeah. Pretty hard, isn't it? Yeah. Something always keeps sneaking in there. <laughs> Love this song. Let me tell you about my best friend. He's a warm-hearted person who loved me till the end. People let me tell you about my best friend. He's a one-boy cuddly toy. My up, my down, my pride and joy. People let me tell you about him. He's summer fun. Maybe that's how he turned into a fisherman. That's how he got into fishing. <laughs> Co-starring Miyoshi Umeki. Yeah. <laughs> that could be it. Yeah, he's my best friend. This is such an idealized version of what dad could be. Yeah, absolutely. Right? Yeah. <laughs> I had that outfit, though. <laughs> Did you have the bucket hat? <laughs> you know, they had the dynamite hat. Oh, nice. <laughs> JJ. I remember one episode they put steak on his eye. I was like, get a black eye. I'm like, I don't even get steak to eat. <laughs> I don't have enough steak to throw around on, on his the... eye. <laughs> and then our last of our motherless foursome here is Family Affair. Oh, gosh. Which doesn't, this, this disappointingly doesn't have a great open, but it has a good song that you'll remember. Yeah, they lived in Manhattan, though. This was high tech. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Sissy, I think she started my sexual furnace. <laughs> but she died. Whatever, whatever gets it going. Brian Keith was great in this yeah. show. Yeah. They were all great. This has a little opening scene, too, which we'll play here. Take good care of French while I'm gone, huh? This is Beasley will take care That's of French. That's not Sissy, by the way. Bill, I'll bring your car around. <laughs> you don't want to go back to prison, do you, Brian? <laughs> Sissy's the older sister. <laughs> Jody! God, these shows are so bizarre now. Oh, gosh. Davis, two of them. There are two of them. Yes, what are you doing in New York? Well, we saw your picture on the cover of World Magazine. Yes, you've got any ideas? I must have a word with you. Now, Fran said you practically adopted Buffy, and now the twins could be together. <laughs> Sir, it's absolutely imperative that I, I haven't got time now, Frank. So that plane's going to leave at 4.30. Mr. Gaynor's waiting downstairs. And uh, all this will all work itself out when I get back from Peru. I'll just leave the essentials to you. Goodbye, kids. <laughs> See, he's not, really, uh, in this, he's not really an available dad, though. But I guess later on he warms up to the adorable little tykes. And everybody has, everybody has a mom and a dad. Well, in this case, at least they all have dads. They go no to, moms. They go to the beach. Which is fascinating. <laughs> yeah, it is. I mean, it is. It will make a lot of sense for people that eventually read your book, uh, because you ultimately came to a great kind of rapprochement with your mother uh, towards the end of her mm. life. Yes, and you I were a did. good son. Ooh, you were. Well, it's hard to say that, but I tried to be. I mean, I saw you sitting out there on the stoop for many, many years. <laughs> Trust me, I can tell you were dealing with some shit. Well, that's it, Brian. You made it through. I did. Your first Can't ever podcast. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming in. Thank you for having. I've enjoyed me. our conversation. And I really enjoyed getting to watch 12 Angry Men again and highly recommend it. And I hope that people can read your book. So sell this thing somewhere, will you? Okay, I will. What are you going to do with it? 
I don't know. That's what I'm here to see you about. Oh, yeah? <laughs> All right. Don't you remember? You're the, you came up to me and said, what are you going to do? Are you going to do anything with this story? <laughs> yeah, I know. I've always been fascinated by your story, and it is definitely worth telling. I'm glad we got to get into a little bit of it here. Definitely, this book deserves to get uh, published, and I hope that oh. it does, and that when it does, you can come back on, and we can just get into even more like minutia prison stuff. Okay. Because I can't get enough of that. I would love to. And again, I'm just so impressed and humbled by the positive things you've done with your life. Well, I'm impressed that you even talked to me. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's been easy with the Red Sox winning several world championships yeah. over the last well, few years. You're not going to see that for a while. Those days are over now. 